Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mukigana Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast by Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you doing today? I was doing fine until about uh, a few minutes ago after we recorded for about an hour and 45 minutes and I realized I, I have this new microphone and I wasn't even recording through it. So the audio product that I have at the moment is just, just you, Chris, talking. And then there are some silences where you are just apparently thinking very hard before speaking about something else unrelated. So, but we're going to try to do this again. And we're going to talk about Ronda Rousey. And we're going to talk about the Royal Rumble and uh, W Gender Pay Gap. And uh, then we'll move on to other things like Morgan Stanley and Needham analyses. Ring of Honor's got an OTT service. All Japan's got an OTT service. WrestleMania's got a location for next year. Exceptional clearance, which is something to do with uh, the uh, sexual assault allegations on Vince McMahon in 2006. Uh, the, the New Japan Long Beach show in March has sold out in minutes. And then that's just for everybody on the free, all the freeloaders out there. And then if you pay $5 a month at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics, you can hear us talk about how Impact Wrestling has been picked clean, as uh, my friend Sean Ross Sapp has said. We're going to talk about the Mixed Match Challenge viewership, also on the patron only. We're going to talk about Total Divas viewership for patrons. And we're going to talk about uh, Mookie's trip to the SportsCon yesterday, all the things he learned about analytics and sports business. And we're going to talk about Hulkapedia.com. What is Hulkapedia? What was Hulk Hogan up to in 2007? Was he about to make his uh, journey into the wrestling media business to become a wrestling journalist? You'll have to listen to the patron-only version of this show to find out. How are you, Chris? I, I'm all right. I think if anyone's listening to us at like one and a half speed, you're going to sound like a chipmunk now because I think you're so demoralized by oh. us losing two, two, hour, two hours Let's of go. audio that you're talking. Yeah, you're at a million. We've, you've had Let's this is four cups of coffee. It's all done. Okay. Yeah. This is this is four cups of coffee, Thurston, that I'm uh, talking to right now. At least we made it 34 episodes without having an audio mishap, and hopefully that will be our first and only one ever. Yeah, I, have the voices of wrestling guys ever talked about doing a whole show and losing it? They probably have. I know they've had audio issues at times. So we're we were talking about the Royal Rumble. We were talking about Takeover. We talked about how we much we both enjoyed Gargano versus uh, Andre Almas. Andre Cien Almas. Yeah, and I just I was at the time giving praise to say um, not only is Gargano just an incredible babyface, white meat, just awesome performer, but there's so much 
interesting things going on with Almas, where he was a great heel. He was very good. He was in the right moves at the right place. He's a very talented performer, and we're seeing him come into his own in the American style, much in the same way he did very well in Lucha Libre, and that it was perfectly laid out with the idea of, you know, the manager on the outside interfering, and then Gargano's wife, who we've been previously introduced to, jumping the rail and getting involved. That's that's beautiful to me that, like, it was – the heels acting wrong, the faces getting better and better. And at the same time, the show ending with uh, Tommaso Ciampa coming out and attacking his former tag partner again. And just the kind of the nice closure to say in wrestling, we don't have closure. We don't have an end to things. It's always to be continued, dot, dot, dot. And it's it's nice because it carries over to create interest to watch the next show versus, say, a movie or something where sometimes you feel like, OK, that's the end. I can turn it off. I can tune out. I don't have to go back to this for some time. Yeah, and it's kind of been a signature, at least a, a couple other times I can think of which, where NXT takeovers have ended like that. You can think back to the Kevin Owens, uh, Sami Zayn angle where they roll the copyright graphic and then, oh, you think it's over? But no, Kevin Owens powerbomb Sami Zayn on the ring apron. So maybe a hallmark of uh, Paul of X booking. And the, the other half of that was that this, of course, was a match that got a five-star rating from Dave Meltzer. The first WWE match to get five star ratings since the Money in the Bank match with John Cena and CM Punk, and for me, compare and contrasting it with something like the Omega Jericho match that happened in New Japan this year, um, that also got five stars. I don't think it even comes close. You didn't because like that I match think at all did you? I, I I did like that match. I thought it was a decent four star match. Yes. I just don't think it was a five star match, and I absolutely don't think it was anywhere near the par of that Gargano match. Hey, it was better Jer- than Chris Jericho's last book. Yeah, it was. I will I will definitely say that. Uh, so going into Royal Rumble, as usual, uh, too many matches on the card, too much stuff on the card. Uh, we did not need all the pre-show stuff. We I could took do a nap in the middle of the tag. show. Yeah. I enjoyed the men's uh, Rumble quite a lot. I thought it was a very solid Rumble. I thought it was the best match on the card. Uh, seeing Nakamura win is just you know, incredible when you think about the idea that we have both Nakamura and Asuka, two different people from Japan who had established their roots in professional wrestling in Japan, come to the WWE, get over in NXT, get moved up to the main roster, struggle to stay as over as they were in NXT, but yet connecting enough with the fans and management and everyone else that there's belief in them that they could, in fact, uh, be the winners of the Rumble here and, and in theory, quote unquote, headline, mm-hmm. unquote, uh, WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. And Vince McMahon has outed himself as... The big Japanese wrestling fan that deep down we all know that he is, which has been uh, exposed in a number of photographs over the years where we have seen him hanging out with Giant Baba, Antonio Inoki, Jushin Liger, Atsushi Onita, all his favorite legends of Puroresu. And then finally he's uh, finally he's just, uh, you know, turning WWE into the good Japanese wrestling promotion that we all know it could be. <laughs> Unfortunately, Morishima did not make the cut back in the day. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we were even commenting on how different it was between what what made the head of the uh, was it Weekly Pro Wrestling That's a right. cover that it's the week where Asuka and Nakamura win the Royal Rumble for WWE. Mm-hmm. It's the week where in New Japan they had some really big angles with uh, no, Suzuki. Minoru Suzuki won the IC title from Tanahashi. Jay White won the New Japan US title from Omega. Mm-hmm. And then what was on the cover? And on the cover is Golden Lovers, Koto Ibushi and Kenny Omega embracing as they have reunited after uh, Kenny Omega was kicked out of the Bullet Club by Cody Rhodes and friends. So, and this was one where I was saying, well, perhaps 
they as a company can't use WWE photography on their cover of their magazine because I don't think they're any longer doing this kind of uh, WWE photographers at the ringside, especially the Japanese guys, unless it's a Japanese event. So I think Beast from the East probably had a Japanese photographer there, but uh, less so much for uh, Royal Rumble all the way happening in Philly that year. Yeah, and there's some point, I think, in the early 2000s or maybe even the year 2000 or late 90s, because you watch old W. WF pay-per-views, at least from the late 90s, you'll see on the pay-per-views, you'll see Japanese photographers at ringside, and uh, it's at some point I think Vince put his foot down and only wants his own stuff at ringside. So the the Rumble, obviously, with the Women's Rumble going last, uh, there was a need to make sure that it would be elevated in some way, and so a lot of people read that in as Okay, not only are they going full bore with the women's revolution, women doing a Royal Rumble, but we need to have it end on a high note. And Oscar winning is a good note, but not necessarily a super duper high note. And so the Ronda Rousey appearance at the end of the show was in in many ways a great way of capping off this entire angle to say, here's a big star. Here's what we're doing with them, but leave some mystique to say we're not going to actually show her wrestling. We're going to make this a big deal as if she's just, quote unquote, signing a contract now. And enormous amount of media coming out of the show from that. I almost even wonder, like, can you can you talk Vince into putting uh, Nakamura and Asuka over in respective Royal Rumbles on the same show if you haven't got Ronda Rousey creating all this mainstream buzz at the end of it? You know the the question you and I discussed on on the previous version of this podcast was just kind of if you begin to fantasy book where you deconstruct different elements and take them out of where they are it's very hard to assemble a product that looks the same and what i mean by that is that you don't necessarily put the women's royal rumble at the end of the show if you don't have that big angle to cap off the show and so you're right maybe nakamura and oscar together winning would not be the angle that they'd be going with if they didn't have a ronda rousey reveal that would be a big deal and so maybe it would have been Either uh, I would have actually thought it would probably be the the Braun Strowman uh, uh, Brock Kane match maybe last, and then you have you know Braun winning the title, something like that. Or maybe Roman Reigns going over in, in a Royal Rumble to face Lesnar at WrestleMania. I don't. Yeah, I guess it's possible because they keep saying that that's the angle they're going for. They did it once uh, before in Philadelphia at a Royal Rumble. Yeah, that's true. Just just make sure that that sour taste stays in everyone's mouth. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Ronda Rousey in terms of, um, you know, it says she's quote unquote, she did an interview with ESPN where she said uh, she told Triple H, I can do other things with my time that will make more money, but I won't enjoy nearly as much. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think that trying to make as much money as possible every single day is the best thing for my happiness. I want to wrestle. I want to be part of this company. I want people to lo- I want the people that love the sport to accept me and respect me as being part of the sport. I know that will take time, but I also know that I'm capable of anything. I'm Ronda Rousey, and I'm loving life. She's loving life. How about that? No, I added that last sentence in. But yeah, she uh, Ronda Rousey debuted as Rowdy Ronda Rousey, which, as I um, mentioned on the previous version of the show, I'm going to have to keep referring to it in my mind. Make sure sure I'm not not able to listen to it. Okay, it's a version that's gone. uh, It's gone. Yes, but uh, one element of that is that she trademarked that name in 2015 so this is one of the few people in wwe and she's not the only one the miz technically i think has his own trademark aj styles has his own trademark um but most people they're trademarked through the company their name so the company wwe technically has the trademark uh as the owner of the name versus the wrestler themselves or even when it's their own name sometimes um 
But Rod, Rowdy Ronda Rousey is, in fact, a trademark by Ronda Rousey. And so she's had that since 2015. So obviously WWE is doing some kind of licensing gimmick to then start making merch for her and things of that her nature. Her incorporation is Rowdy Ronda Inc. Corporation in California. She's got a trademark for athletic equipment. Let's see, just some highlights here. Athletic protective pads for martial arts, athletic supporters, athletic tape, punching bags, boxing gloves, boxing bags, punching mitts, belly protectors, groin protectors, shin guards, yoga blocks, yoga mats, yoga straps, yoga towels, specially adapted for yoga mats. All sorts of great items here. And we, I know Meltzer had a lot of criticism for Rousey in terms of giving the appearance that she was playing a pro wrestler in her striding down to the ring, doing the point to the sign, just like the wrestlers have been told to do, kind of pretending to shake hands or or offering it and not, you know, kind of playing that uncertainty angle and going over and doing something with Stephanie McMahon. And there's that challenge to say, is she going to be accepted by the fans? Is she going to be enjoyed by the fans if she is a caricature of someone playing a professional wrestler versus the badass fighter that, you know, kind of became a legend on UFC? Is she going to become a, a philanderized caricature of a pro wrestler just like so many others have been, you know, they they maybe started out having uh, some well-roundedness to them, but as their catchphrases got over and got, you know, focused on more than their humanity, uh, they became flanderized. So when you say that, you don't mean like a philanderer. You mean like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, right? And, and not even, I'm not even talking about philanthropy, which is the, okay. uh, the uh, what is it, the future of marketing? No, I'm, I'm talking about Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, who I got, I'm not a, the biggest Simpsons fan. I'm sure someone out there can can straighten us out if we're getting this wrong. But uh, I think in, in early seasons, he had a, a, a more well-rounded character. And as the seasons went on, he became more and more ridiculous. And... One of the biggest talking points has been uh, Ronda Rousey. Is she a draw and how much are they paying her? And I think it's an interesting question to say, is she now the highest paid woman in the WWE? Um, and Probably. is that right? And how does that compare to to other people uh, from from different levels? And so one thing I, I, I started off with is I didn't talk about Rousey, but I wanted to talk about Brock. And I wanted to say that Brock Lesnar uh, last year did about – 32 appearances. Um, I I did some math. I counted it out. I said he did about six pay-per-views because he was in the Rumble. He did eight house shows. That was 14 events. And then on top of that, he did about 18 episodes of Raw. And I went through descriptions of each episode of Raw, and I looked for the word Lesnar, and I made sure that it was Lesnar was actually there, not just Lesnar, you know, was being talked about by Paul Heyman. Mm -hmm. And I found that, you know, he was doing about 18 weeks that he showed up on Raw Plus the 14 shows. That's 32 shows. So if you figure he got paid maybe $5 million over three years. Let's let's just go with that as a number. I don't know if that's the real number, but it, that was the number I'd heard for a while there. So $5 million over three years, that's about $1.66 million a year divided by 32 shows. That's about 52000 maybe over 33 shows, $50,000 a show. Think that's a downside? Um, I think Brock's deal is that he gets um, a, a, a certain amount of money to do all these appearances and then he might get merchandise on top of that. Okay. But it, it's, it's said in such a way that they have to pay him more if he wants to do more appearances, but he gets so many appearances a year and then he agrees to appear, I think on raw X amount of times. Yeah. And not sort to of thing. derail, but I would, I would guess that Rousey's probably getting a similar deal in terms of the, the, the terms of the deal. Yeah. And I mean, it, 
a lot of times people that are used to big, big, big money get big money. Brock Lesnar's developmental deal was $250,000 a year. So, you know, he's just a big college wrestling star coming out because he was a big college wrestling star. And people were talking about him being a WWE star before he even started. He had the right contacts from Minnesota, you know, like uh, Brad Reinigan's, I think, was someone who was in his ear from the day he was at, at the U of M. You know, it, it goes way, way back. And so I think they knew that there was interest from other companies. There was interest from Japanese companies, because if you think about this, this is 99 going into 2000. This is, you know, peak Japan loving MMA mm-hmm. kind of time. Uh, Brock Lesnar talks about, I think, even negotiating with UFC back then. The dark, uh, and the dark days of UFC, they're not even on major pay-per-view carriers, right? So they gave him $250,000 a year when he was on a developmental contract. They gave him a million dollars a year during his first run with WWE when he was, you know, the world's youngest champion, all that stuff. And then they let him leave WWE when he was unhappy and basically said, you can go try out for the Vikings. And then they got into the big contract fight. 2004. Yeah. Yeah. But it says a lot that, you know, he's he walked in at 250K and was working at a million. And when they brought him back, he wasn't coming back to work for less money. He was coming back to work for a lot of money and a lighter schedule. So the fact that he would get such a good deal, which, again, we I worked out here to be maybe $50,000 a show. Sounds like a lot, right? $50,000 a show. But when you keep in mind that at the house shows that Brock Lesnar did, if you look at an average non-Monday domestic U.S. slash Canada raw house show, they averaged 4,200 people last year. If Brock Lesnar was on that card, 6,900 people. Now, it's a very small sample size, but that's 1,700 people. And if you figure the average ticket, especially for the the, the Brock Lesnar-esque shows that he would be on, is maybe 50 bucks. That's only 1,000 people you have to draw with your Brock Lesnar in, in there. And so does he generate money towards the brand as a whole? I think when you do the math that way, you would say he's at least break even. And if nothing else, he, he builds the brand as a whole to be a bigger thing. So $5 million over three years, that's, is that $5 million per those three years or is that uh, $5 million across three years? I was always under the uh, understanding it was about five million over those three years. So, you know, I think his new contract was even higher. So maybe five, five, maybe six. And again, I don't know if that includes merchandising. I don't know if that includes video game rights. You know, I would think those are extras. So, you know, he he has a lot of potential to earn more money. He's a lot of potential to continue to market himself. And he obviously has a deal where he doesn't have to get drug tested. He can negotiate for UFC fights. And In fact, he can test them. positive on drug tests that aren't administered by WWE's contractors. And then uh, he, it doesn't even matter. He can still keep wrestling for WWE. He's not going to get suspended or punished in any way at all. So, you know, he has a pretty good deal. So I just want to kind of put it in perspective. I think a lot of people think of Brock Lesnar gets five million bucks to do nothing. And I would say, no, he works 30 plus times a year for this company and he returns to them a, a decent value. I don't think they need 40 Brock Lesnar's, and nor do I think there are 40 Brock Lesnar's out there. But uh, he was a high-priced guy who proved he could be a draw in UFC, and they paid a lot of money to lure him back. So when Ronda Rousey walks in, well, she's someone who is a high-priced athlete, who has great recognition across uh, both fighting sports, but also recognition in the general mainstream population, entertainment population. She's in movies. She hosted SNL. She was on the Battle, Battle of the Network Stars. She's been on Sports Illustrated. She's been both as a athlete and as a model. You know, she is someone who has a valuable commodity to her and is the a – executive executives probably recognize her. 
Yeah. So, again, the other part of this has been that WWE might be able to leverage some of the halo effect, as they say in the industry, to give them some more idea about what they're worth for TV rights by saying, hey, you know that women's revolution? You know, we talk about women in sports. What if we told you we have one of the biggest stars in the world for women in sports that is working for us right now? Not only that, she's working, quote unquote, full time, whatever full time means. Probably not a full-time house show schedule. Um, I guess my point would be that we don't – there aren't – yeah, I agree that there aren't uh, a lot of other Brock Lesnar's out there. But I think if you're going to have Vince McMahon booking TV in the way that he books it, it would be to a lot of other people's benefit if they were made special and more rare. Especially – especially I don't know. I, I Big Show is probably at the end of his career. Especially in this case of someone like, someone like Big Show throughout his prime – I think it was way overexposed by WWE's style of TV. Um, I don't but, – yeah, go ahead. You, you know, I challenged you on this it, when we talked about this the first time because I also said, well, are you saying that we shouldn't have had Bro- we shouldn't have had Steve Austin on television every week or The Rock on television every week? Because no, because I think – I think big wrestling stars can be big wrestling stars and they don't get quote-unquote overexposed by the fact they're on television every week. Jerry no. Lawler isn't overexposed because he's in Memphis every week. Yeah, my response to that would be like in, in the Attitude Era and in, in Memphis, the, the booking style, the TV style didn't overexpose those characters. The TV style today does overexpose and doesn't, doesn't help people like Nakamura or even people like, I don't know, Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins, even Roman Reigns. The, I mean, the, ni- 1985, Hogan did 158 matches. Uh, mm-hmm. Savage did 148 matches. You know, these were guys. Andre the Giant did 137 matches on my website is, is what I have him at. In, in 1986, mm-hmm. Randy Savage, I have 265 matches, if you can believe that. Yeah, but how many of them uh, were on TV? Very few. And then same with Hogan. Hogan did 157 matches. But, but my point is that these guys still worked full-time schedules. You know, 157 matches would be considered a full-time schedule today, let alone in 1986. Yeah. So it, it, there was a different – I agree with you with the idea of making someone an attraction, making them special. But at the same time, they were on the road all the time and they were working a lot of events because live events were a giant revenue generator for sure. them. And, and, and that's – I'm not talking about house shows. Like you can – I have another issue with house shows that's separate from this issue. But like I, I'm – you can have them on the road 365 days a year as long as they're not being overexposed to the masses, to everybody nationwide, worldwide on a weekly basis. So I think the challenge will be will it make sense for Ronda Rousey to ever be on house shows and will she lose kind of some of the gleam of her eye if she goes to someone who's now doing four minute or eight minute or 12 minute or even 20 minute things in, you know, Fargo, North Dakota. Is that going to be the same kind of allure of being in front of these television audiences or being on these pay-per-views and being treated like a big star versus actually doing the grueling travel and kind of that risk to reward ratio where, you know, you travel for a whole day, you go out and you spend 20 minutes in front of an audience and then you go in the back and that's your entire time. Mm-hmm. You know, is, is she going to last? And the thing we were saying also with the TV executives is – one of the reasons I think they have to communicate she's full-time is that the new TV deal doesn't start until, what, September of 2019? Right. The U.S. TV deal wouldn't. Yep. So right now it's February of 2018. So if I tell you, hey, I've got an angle. This person's going to work Royal Rumble, work mm-hmm. WrestleMania, work Survivor Series, work Royal Rumble, and they're going to work WrestleMania. I'm giving you two WrestleManias. The person would say, yeah, but my TV deal doesn't start till well after that. Six months after that is done, that's when my TV deal starts. So if you don't have them signed for full time, you could do a Goldberg angle, 
come and go before you even have the new thing. And if you're a smart TV executive, you'd say, hey, you're not really delivering to me this big star that you're in the news about right now. And so we don't know this, but it would be a good idea for WWE if they had her signed to at least a two-year deal and then whispered that to some of their TV executives that they might be talking to. Because that yeah. two, two years from now would put them over the their, their current U.S. TV contract, which expires again in September 2019. Exactly. And, and the challenge is we don't have TV rousey numbers yet. She wasn't on the Raw after the Rumble. The Raw after the Rumble, I think the, the ratings were down year over year. Um, we didn't really see a giant peak of female viewers, but at the same time, she wasn't on. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy if we suddenly start reading into when someone's not on and something doesn't happen, Do is that a proof of something else? And but post-rumble I, is usually the number two or so uh, raw, raw viewership of the year. I know a couple of It is a very high-rated one, yeah. I mean, if you don't have an anniversary. Post-mania. And obviously we had Raw 25, which is... It's probably going to be competitive with the Postmania viewership, but yeah. So so that's one data point, right? Mm-hmm. Raw ratings, not through the roof. Not bad, but not through the roof mm-hmm. uh, compared. What about YouTube views? You know, we, I, I've derived YouTube plenty in my time, but that's another way for us to use a metric to understand what is popular. Right. Coming out of the Rumble, what are the numbers that we see on the WWE YouTube channel about views for videos related to these people? We've got a, a bunch of clips about Ronda Rousey, everything from her debut at the Royal Rumble itself to some, some interviews and things like that. The to biggest, a photo shoot. She does a photo shoot with the jacket and then she yeah. takes the jacket off. And she gives it to Roddy, right? Roddy Piper's son. And apparently it's his, his jacket actually. And so I thought that was interesting that I, maybe that was covered in commentary. I had missed it. Um, but apparently the jacket was actually Roddy, Roddy Piper's jacket, which I thought, okay, that's a, that's kind of a fun connection there. And so for people that feel that she's, you know, kind of treading on this legacy one way or the other, I think that's an important thing to kind of keep in mind is that you do have some family buy-in here. Mm-hmm. And so the, all these clips on YouTube, the, the, the most viewed one is the one where she actually comes out at the Royal Rumble confronts Asuka, Alexa Bliss, Charlotte Flair. That's got just under 3 million views as of this morning. And then when you compare that to Rey Mysterio's clip on YouTube of him coming out for the Rumble, that's got 11 million. So 11 million for Rey, 3 million for Rousey. She's got a number of other clips, and I think you, you totaled them up and said they're about how many views total for all these? It looks like about six or seven clips. Around four million. She did, like I say, three million. Well, maybe five million. She did. She did three million on the Oscar uh, Bliss Charlotte Flair Royal Rumble coming out and pointing. She did a million on SmackDown Live when they basically replayed it. She did seven fifty when she talked about um, be going to WWE. Uh, she did two forty when she just talked about ringside, and then she did about one seventy on the photo shoot and one eighty. On one of those, Kathy Kelly talks about, you know, this is what's happening in WWE now things. But, you know, Trish Stratus in the Rumble did 2.3, 2.4 million views. Mm-hmm. And so one thing you and I were kind of speculating is, is this drawing in fans that are non-WWE fans or is this more in an element where lapsed fans are interested in seeing Legends return and Ronda Rousey's appeal to them could be anywhere. It could be anything from... I want to see this because I care a lot about Ronda Rousey to Trish Stratus is a bigger star because she was someone I actually watched in wrestling. Right. I, I would, I'd be curious to if like these YouTube views are capturing a sort of established wrestling fan and that established wrestling fan isn't as interested in Ronda Rousey as they are in the return of Rey Mysterio. 
I mean, his his interview, just an interview with Rey Mysterio did one point seven million views. Uh, I mean, that blows away everything else Ronda did except for the angle itself. So it's intriguing to me to say, okay, raw numbers weren't way up. YouTube numbers uh, don't really make it seem like she is a megastar. I mean, she's a star because she's getting over a million views, which not a lot of things do. But Braun Strowman throwing, you know, turnip trucks in the air gets a lot of views, too. And that doesn't mean we're going to pay them the same. Um, But, you know, she's. So I, she's I someone who probably it, is getting paid, though, like we say, Brock Lesnar money. I, I'm nearly positive it's well over a million, you know, right? Because, I mean, she made like a million for her, like, Cat Zango fight. She made a, a million just on pay-per-view for the Cat Zangano. Are we saying that right? Cat Zangano. I think that's correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just a million in pay-per-view bonus, and then uh, she made uh, probably around that for her each one of her subsequent fights, which were all on pay-per-view. And wait, wait, you know, doesn't it say here she made $3 million for her fight against Amanda Nunes? Exactly, and then she made she made 230 just uh, in, I don't know what you would call it, in her payout, but that doesn't include her pay-per-view bonus. 230, did I say 230 million? 230,000 to fight Betch Correa, uh, 165,000 to lose to Holly Holm. And, and three, she made a lot more than that on that fight, for exactly. sure, with so the pay-per-view with, with pay-per-view bonus, it's probably over a million. And a then... Man- yeah, yeah, and then to fight Amanda Nunez, she got three million just to show for that, and certainly got pay per view money on top of that. Yeah, so I mean, if she can keep it together mentally, this is an opportunity for her to make some money, but probably not as much money as she could be making if she was going out there and doing everything. And UFC alone will make her a lot of money and could give her a big money offer. And I think it's telling that she's kind of moving in a different direction than that. Mm-hmm. And UFC is in a place where. You know, honestly, if I was UFC trying to negotiate, I would much rather have a uh, Ronda Rousey in my camp to be able to say, look at the big marketable star that I have here that's signed to a contract with me versus, uh, you know, looking at at WWE, who it's unclear if you can leverage it. I think it's positive for them as a net positive because it's a big star and it's gotten them an enormous amount of press. I mean, tons and tons and tons of outlets want to talk about this. One XM radio interviewed the wrong Dave Meltzer in their excitement right. to to uh, talk about this. But it's has, hard has to anyone say. interviewed the wrong Chris Harrington yet. Um, How would I know? I, they might have interviewed a Mookie from Ghana. Maybe that's what happened. Is Maybe. that a. There's Maybe. there's a guy in Ghana who keeps getting requests. I got my, I got one request today um, from Zach. Uh, I won't I won't reveal Zach's last name, but uh, Zach wants me to be, get a message to Seth Rollins, and oh. uh, I, I said you can check corporate.wwe.com to figure out how to get contacts to to WWE people. I don't know how to reach Seth beyond going to his Twitter. And so the guy said, "Can you give him a message through Twitter for me?" <laughs> and Seth Rollins uh, I follow you on Twitter. No, <laughs> this is silly. Mm. there are some WWE people that follow me on Twitter and I, I appreciate that. Uh, but Seth Rollins is not one of them. And so I do not know why this man is convinced that I am the best way to reach Seth Rollins. So you're, you're an insider. You know things, Mookie. Yeah, I'm an influencer. Uh, yeah. I just got the uh, the fruit snacks and the ECW press book. So I'm, I'm an important guy, I guess. Yeah. And ho- hopefully someday someone will interview the uh, the tattoo artist Brandon Thurston when they're, and ask him questions about wrestling business. So, <laughs> what about the women's reaction to this? So uh, we talk about who are the the top stars that get paid a lot of money in WWE, and most of them are men. And then you have the women here who uh, may or may not feel like they're being shoved aside because uh, Ronda Rousey's coming in. And what what has been the reaction on Twitter or in, in other things? And do you think it's real or fake? 
I think it's real to some extent. Uh, Nikki Bella and Nia Jax went on Twitter and uh, said, you know, well, what do the other 30 women think about this? It's supposed to be a historic moment for women having the first Royal Rumble and sort of getting the feeling that it's being overshadowed by Ronda Rousey's debut. Uh, Sasha Banks is on Busted Open Radio. I believe that's on XM. And she said she has nothing nice to say. Uh, she has nothing to say because she has nothing nice to say, so she can't say anything at all. And um, I don't know. I think they were, they're probably thinking, I don't know if I were in their position, I would think, oh, here's this, you know, person who's never done anything in pro wrestling, but she's a big star from some other sport. And now, you know, all these people who had to go through NXT and had to, you know, work hard in the main roster and do whatever it is they're doing, you know, every day, they have to be on the road four days a week. And uh, they want those top spots in WWE. They want to be in the main event. They want to be on top, regardless of whether they're male or female. And uh, now you've got Ronda Rousey just jumping over all of them in terms of pay and in, probably in terms of uh, where they're going to be, where she's going to be positioned, uh, having to do no work in pro wrestling at all except for to be a big star from another sport. I'll give the counter argument, which is, yes, we have seen very successful professional wrestlers who understand this business become jealous when other successful stars get involved. We've seen this going, you know, John Cena legendarily was was not. Um, happy about the rock right and was was bad mouthing the situation there and in the end that work become or that shoot becomes a work and and they make a lot of money together and have very successful time yeah. um there isn't a, a natural competitiveness with all these independent contractors as they all jockey to become successful remain relevant and uh, maintain earning potential and so you could also argue every time you break a barrier and you you blast through a pay window it opens doors for people to use that as leverage and opportunity for themselves. Because if you can hear that, you know, uh, if you know what writers are being paid on a site, you can oftentimes leverage more money than to say, I am worth it. I am valuable. Look at what I'm doing here. And there is that ability sometimes to say, you know what? I shouldn't be making 50 bucks an article. I should be making 100 bucks an article because that's the reasonable rate that these other people are being paid. And so that might go a little bit more towards pay disclosure. But um, I, I do think that there's an ability to say that if you can prove that, yeah, you're willing to pay women a million bucks to be on this on, – on the show and headline, it's also proving that, yeah, you're willing to pay for talent and that top talent deserves to be paid a lot. And, you, and people might be using that and pushing that direction in the future. Um, so I what think you're saying is on Monday, everyone should be in Mark Carano's office asking for – all the women should be in Mark Carano's office asking for a raise. I'm saying it's a possibility that when you're renegotiating your or maybe contract, Vince's office. You know, you have a contract that says what you make. And again, there's a big difference between what your downside says, and that's what's in the contract, and what you're making in a year, which is going to be the basis of going on house show tours, especially international house show tours, selling merchandise, getting video game money, getting licensing money, getting all sorts of other things that can happen. So I, I think it's a lot to say. I do think it creates a natural animosity that you can play into as a storyline because I think each one of us can believe that this is a story that's happening. But I also believe that the company would not be in some ways feeling so comfortable with making this a social media storyline unless it was playing into a bigger role for them. And when you think about it, why were Nikki Bella and Brie Bella where they were in the rumble at that time? Well, part of that is because it's an angle for total Bellas, the television show. Yeah. And so a lot of times what we're seeing is them not just working on what they're presenting to you right now, but it might be two or three or four different media angles that are going on top of that where, oh, this is part of a Total Bellas storyline or, oh, this is so I can push this WWE network idea here or this is where I'm going to have this story here that's going to show up in this this special. 
you know, there's more than one thing happening. And so I, yeah, I don't WWE know if I is an integrated media organization and the recognized leader in global entertainment after all. Yeah. And so I don't know if it's reasonable just to assume that, yeah, these people are angry and they're venting as much as it is to say the company is okay with this because it creates a natural storyline that people can believe. And for them, when people believe things are real, they like that, whether or not it's valuable. You know, you could argue a lot of times you work yourself, you shoot yourself out of a work, right? You you have a good opportunity where if people could just work together, they could make a lot of money. And instead, they get so petty about it that they start losing money. And we saw that with WCW all the time. You know, famously, that's the Bash of the Beach lawsuit is that, you know, the claims that they, they he said disparaging things about him and he didn't want to work anymore, Hogan. So yeah. you talk about 2000 Bash of the Beach, uh, Vince Russo and Hogan and all that mess. Yeah. yeah. So what about Rousey? Do we know if she's even going to be able to do pro wrestling matches? Is she going to be a good promo? Is, is she going to be too bound by what they're making her into here? and making her into a wrestling thing. And, and we should point out the wrestling match we've heard about is Triple H, Stephanie versus Rousey and a partner. Partner, they love to be The Rock. Obviously, that's expensive. That's tough to schedule. And that's an older wrestler who has a lot of uh, uh, legacy of getting injured on these kind of short little matches. So is it going to be someone else? Um, you know, I, I had heard Braun Strowman as an option. You had heard someone different as an option. I did? Well, I mean, you suggested someone different. Who did I suggest? You suggested Kurt Angle. Oh, Kurt Angle, yeah. That's not believable, and, though. Well, it's an interesting thing because it plays into the Stephanie Triple H, Kurt Angle love triangle storyline from so many years ago. We've seen Kurt Angle go. We know that he's been medically cleared to wrestle. It's, it's a big state show. You don't think it's believable? I think it's believable for Kurt Angle no, and Triple not, H to fight you're each not, other. You're not getting my joke. <laughs> the, uh, oh, the, uh, I, you're the, right. The, yeah, the that, line in like the, the early 2000s when that angle between Triple H, Kurt Angle, and Stephanie was originally going on, I guess Triple the, the legend has it that Triple H like shot it down because he didn't think it was believable that Stephanie would go with Kurt Angle over him or something like that. Yes, that is true. Um, so WrestleMania, she's there. Does this have an impact on WWE Network subs? I think it does. Uh, Want to go into the numbers? Yeah, and I, I just want to also start off right at the top with a point that we kind of buried the first time we talked about this, which is we would love to say, yeah, everybody who's incremental, they're going to get it for free. So how can you say that's going to help your subs? Here's how I think it's going to help your subs. I had four friends who wanted to watch the Rumble, and they were on the fence about watching the Rumble. And they all told me they weren't going to watch the Rumble. And the next thing I knew, they were tweeting me about the Rumble. Now, this is all and, before they knew Rousey was going to be there, right? Yes, but the point was they all told me they used up their free trials, and so they were paying to watch the Rumble. And you can counter that with, good God, it's so easy. Just make a fake email address, plug it in, and do it. That's but for them, it's too much friction, like you love to say. They they are fine paying 10 bucks to watch wrestling because it's 10 bucks and it's it's something they were interested in. And ultimately, they were intrigued enough to spend the money to do it. And I think it's important to say there's a lot of people – that might get re-engaged with WWE who are lapsed fans. And we know that there's millions, millions of accounts that have been created and likely millions of users, individuals or households that have been interested in wrestling. There's a, a one and a half million right now, roughly. Yes. But I mean, we know the total number of accounts is much higher. Yes. You know, we know, we know there's, you know, they, they have some enormous number of total accounts, but we know the number of WWE network accounts that have ever existed is two to three million yeah. easily. Yeah. And um, so we, what you're saying are, is there's likely individuals who are responsible for more than one account. Obviously, there's people who have created more than one account. I think that's a minority, but yeah. 
but and on the flip side, what I'm also saying is there's a lot of people that when they come back, they pay full price immediately. They don't even go in for the free sub. And you'd think it's so easy to get a free sub, but yet they don't because to them, it's a lot of hassle for 10 bucks. And for them, 10 bucks is okay because they're paying for something they actually enjoy. They just want to enjoy it. If they don't feel like they're enjoying it, they stop paying for it. That's the key. So I do think she can have an immediate effect on the business because you're getting you're regaining casual wrestling fans who have lapsed, who are re-intrigued rather than worrying just about getting brand new UFC fans. And I think that's going to be different here is that I don't know if those brand new UFC fans are going to be valuable to WWE. I do think casual fans might be more intrigued by what's happening with WWE because of this angle. Yeah, And I think that's reflected in the YouTube views that we just discussed. Um, so I think there's, there's an attraction for maybe people who aren't big WWE wrestling fans. Maybe they haven't even subscribed to the W network ever, but maybe they have a little bit of an interest. They kind of are aware of it. And maybe they're big Ronda Rousey fans. Maybe they're the kind of people who watched her, her UFC fights over the last couple of years. And you know, they're probably hearing about Ronda Rousey being in WWE right now and uh, come WrestleMania, if they give it an okay build, maybe they'll subscribe to the W network. There'll be free trial subs at that time. Most of them, these curiosity subscriptions, you might call them. And, uh, whether or not they're going to subscribe and stay subscribed and convert to being paid subscribers is the big question, right? And I think a lot of that will depend on how regularly it appears Rousey will be appearing on W programming going forward, how good the performance, the match at WrestleMania itself is. That will be a big deal. If that match stinks, it's going to, why should we, if we're not excited by the end of that match about the prospect of what Ronda Rousey is going to do in the future, I have no incentive uh, to keep my sub and to convert it to paid. So, so let's talk some sub numbers. So, yeah. uh, WrestleMania 2015, 1,315,000 subs. There was no free subs that year. The next year, WrestleMania 2016, 1.454 million with 370,000 additional free subs. So that was 1.8 million total people, but 1.45 paid people. Um, and then the, this past year, April 3rd, 2017, WrestleMania 33, there was 1.661 million paid, 288,000, so less than the 370 from the year prior, free for a total of 1949. They desperately, I think, wanted to hit that 2 million mark and they missed it. Um, but it was 1.66 million paid this year, 1.45 million paid the year before. The question is, where are we going to be for WrestleMania 2018, for WrestleMania 34 in New Orleans? What do you think it is without Rousey, and what do you think it is with Rousey for paid? Let's just focus on paid right now. Without Rousey and with her, I just happen to have numbers right here at my disposal, conveniently. Um, I think without Rousey, let's imagine this whole thing never happened. I think they still get to $2 million total between free and paid for WrestleMania this year. I think without her, they get $101 million. I'm sorry. 1,777,000 paid post WrestleMania and I think about 250,000 free that brings it to just over 2 million. Um with her though, I think they get twice as many free, let's say 500,000 free subs and let's say a little more paid because you got some people who have pre-existing accounts but they're excited enough because of whatever WrestleMania is including Rousey that they they renew their subscriptions and they don't have a free trial sub to use. So I'm guessing 1,850,000 paid plus 500,000 free. That brings it to about 2.35 million subscribers with Ronda Rousey. So without her, again, about 2 million 
with her about two million three hundred fifty thousand. So she's responsible for an extra three hundred twenty-five thousand to three hundred fifty thousand extra subs. Most of them being free, though. Then again, the the challenge will be to see if those free subs can be converted and maintained throughout the year. What's important to remember is just the difference between kind of the end of the year number where we are, you know, essentially the number you're going to hear on, what is it, Thursday when we have the Q4 results? Yeah. And the number of where you are at WrestleMania, which is usually the peak number of subscribers for the year or, or close to the peak. You could you could argue that the peak peak month is probably shortly after WrestleMania when the free trials end and the conversions kind of kick in. But um, right now, as of, you know, where we think we're going to get numbers are uh, for 1231-2017, we'll probably have a number very close to 145 set, uh, 145, 147, somewhere in there, a little under 1.5 million subs. And what's intriguing to me is that is equivalent to the number of paid subs at WrestleMania 2016. Yeah, they're projecting within 2% of 1.47 for December 31st. So throughout Q4, actually, I should say it's kind of amazing to me that the peak of 2016 in paid subs is equal to, in some ways, the trough of 2017, the very bottom of it. And that's really good news for them, right? Because that's showing that you can incrementally kind of squeeze up this business, kind of shimmy up the pole a little bit. You're sliding down some every year, but you're still shimmying up higher than where you started. And that would suggest that the end of, you know, if this trend kept up. And I'd have to go and, and kind of look at see how it is. It would suggest the end of 2018 would be around 166 million. You know, that would be intriguing to look at as a, a prediction here. And lo and behold, when you and I gave predictions of where we thought we'd be on 1231, you said 165. I said 164. Yep. Um, so it, it's funny that, you know, looking at this trend line, maybe that's going to follow. Maybe it won't. You're suggesting maybe they're going to be 150,000 ish more people than they were a year ago for WrestleMania. And then with Ronda in there, it would be more like uh, 200 to 250 in terms of paid. Um, It will be – I think you might be overestimating the number of frees uh, for your with Rousey number just because last year the number of free accounts went down from 370 to 288. And last year there was a lot of push for free WrestleMania for three months trials for all that other stuff. And the total number of accounts that ended up taking advantage of it were still much lower than I think a lot of us expected it to be. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if that free number is a little bit lower, but if that paid number is a little bit higher. So I, I agree with you that getting well over $1.8 million for paid with Rousey is not unreasonable. I mean, if they if they hit $2 million paid for Rousey, that would be out of this world. I mean, that would be stellar for them. I don't. That would be really high. I don't think that's going to happen. I I don't. But I want to. I want to put that expectation out there just to make it clear that, like, if we saw that number, no matter how good or bad that match was, I would be dancing on the ceiling. Like that would be amazing numbers for them. I think it's much more realistic to expect them to grow like they have in the past by about a hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand more people each year, especially with the you know all the penetration of the international markets. But then on top of that, to say this special guest star is worth another 50 to a hundred thousand more. Yeah. I guess my extrapolation there is like Ronda Rousey on pay-per-view does, let's say a million buys. And I think that's what the last two UFC pay-per-views that she fought on, even in, in losing fights, uh, drew about, I think 1.1 million is the number that I found for both the home and the, the Nunez fight. So you're not going to capture all those people, of course. Uh, but you, you'll capture a minority of them. So I figure, you know, what am, what am I saying here? Three hundred to three hundred fifty thousand, uh, and and if and I think 
who are those people? I think those are going to be people who have mostly never subscribed to the WWE Network before. So that's why I guess I'm I'm going so high with Rousey. 500,000 free subs for post-WrestleMania. And by the way, what we're talking about here is the day after WrestleMania, we're going to get a number, which we always do, about what are the network subs right after WrestleMania. So we will... There's no reason to not expect we won't get that again this year. Um, <clears throat> so... Yeah, and I think I, I still would think without Rousey, they would they would continue to go down. The free sub number would continue to go down from three seventy in uh, two thousand sixteen to two eighty eight two thousand seventeen, and I would predict I don't know, let's say two fifty in two thousand eighteen without her. But but with her, it's got to be I think it's got to be higher. So it, it will be very important to see how much they are marketing her as a TV personality versus a network personality. Um, hopefully, they won't be stupid and put her wrestling on television for free. You know, unless you have some big money event that you're going to make a ton off of, uh, it makes sense to make that a network exclusive. So uh, I think for them to leverage it as a a value to them for their TV rights negotiations, I think it's important that they get a lot of buzz now. But also, I think it's important that you communicate this person is going to be part of my roster, is going to be part of my star power that I'm bringing to your network come end of 2019. And uh, that's something that I think is sometimes overlooked in this conversation is that people forget that no matter what they sign today, are you really telling me in 18 months from now, you're actually going to be able to still deliver on that. So, um, I wanted to quickly just touch on, on, uh, two articles. I'm not actually going to talk in depth about them. I'm just going to kind of mention that they're out there. Uh, one is Scarlett Harris wrote an article for the daily beast. Uh, it's called, it's time for WWE to close its gender pay gap. And I also want to mention that Nick W on uh, diva-dirt.com wrote a new article. And it's called, uh, Are Equal Opportunities Leading to Equal Pay? And uh, it's talking about a, a very similar, um, the pay scale of people in WWE and the fact that uh, the le- most recent Forbes list that came out suggests that you know the highest paid people are men. And that these highest paid men are being paid a whole lot more than a lot of these females. And we've already talked a little bit about, you know, the concept of Brock Lesnar. Obviously, this list doesn't include Ronda Rousey. And it just kind of goes to say when you're coming in with a strong drawing record, you do get treated differently. And uh, lastly, that we don't really know how accurate these Forbes lists are because they're being calculated and, and put together by people who are looking at old contracts and then they're trying to extrapolate from that what the value is that different people are getting on different revenue streams. And, of course, when you're on a special TV show like Total Divas or Total Bellas or or uh, Ms. and Mrs. Um, or, and you have your own side projects on you know YouTube channels that are very popular or whatnot, you can be bringing in different revenue streams than somebody who's maybe not in those same opportunities. Yeah. I, I think what's there, – there, there certainly is a, a – a pay gap among men and women in WWE, if nothing else, because the women are not in the high profile main events. Uh, and the men are with the exception of like the hell in the cell main event, which they didn't even decide was going to be the main event until the day of. Right. Um, so I think maybe in the future, if women in WWE do get to be in main events on some sort of regular basis at, at that point, I would expect the pay to be more equal, but the pay is not equal now because just the culture and the legacy of pro wrestling is to, is to marginalize women and to make them novelties and to not, then to, to think that, Oh, we have this male audience out here that doesn't really want to see men or, or I'm sorry, doesn't really want to see women in, in big spots. So that's what we're well, going to do. Have we, have we seen a counterexample, though? Have we seen a, an environment where women have been on top for wrestling? 
we have. And, and, you know, a lot of the points that people bring up as well, Randy Richter didn't really work out in the eighties and maybe the London Blaze didn't really work out in the nineties, but, uh, and, and granted this is a different time and culture, but in Japan in the eighties, the crush gals became really big stars, at least for several years in Japan. And, uh, I, I see no reason why you couldn't have something similar in the U S in, in, in modern times, uh, if, if though, though short term, we- if not long term. We will point out, though, that there was a very different demographic that was attending those shows and watching those shows. They had an enormously high female population that was yeah. watching and attending those shows and and yeah. a teenage population. People, if you've never seen All Japan Women from, from the mid-'80s, it's unlike anything I've ever seen before in wrestling. Just the, the crowd reactions, and it's just such a different atmosphere. And And I think that's part of it to me is that it's really hard to kind of overlay the two situations is that in some ways it feels more like the difference between the audience that is watching Total Bellas and the audience that is watching Monday Night Raw, where they they are very different demographic basis and and composition. And so it's it's harder sometimes to imagine Monday Night Raw, but being booked the way All Japan Women was, and then not acknowledging the fact that you're coming in with a very dim, different demographic base. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree I, I i completely agree that the women can have a big part in a big role on the show and they should have a big role on the show and i think just like any other superstar they should have an opportunity to, to have main event angles i'll also point out that the main event of raw is usually the lowest rated hour of the show and it has been for two years now and so we can sometimes overstate the concept of what is the main event versus who is the biggest star on the show and we've heard triple h say at that fortune conference that he went to uh in aspen where he said women are are often in or usually in the main of the the highest rated segment of the television show we don't know if that's true or not because we don't have the minute by minute ratings i'm assuming it's true i'm taking him at his word i think we have one data point of that where a a sasha banks and charlotte one of of the times that they traded the title was the highest rated segment on 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 a given raw but we don't get uh, we don't get segment ratings, so I don't know how people can make those claims. So I, I think I think it's as simple as saying, well, this company said it, so I believe it. And I'd be like, well, what about all these other things the company said that you refuse to believe? So you know, it's it sounds very cherry picking to me sometimes that people like to believe selectively the information they think a- appropriates their worldview. And of course, that's every one of us. But I, I just I have to be the the negative Nelly to say I don't have a clue which way it goes. Um, th- that said. I, I just think that, you know, you are inherently dealing with um, a whole bunch of different experience levels and, and other elements that go into where people are coming into this industry. The average age of the men in the Royal Rumble was 35 years old. And that's when I take out Hurricane and Ray and and uh, even Gold Dust. And the average age of the women was 30 years old. And that's when I take out all of the legends, you know, the Lita and the Trish and, and everyone else that was in there, Vicky Guerrero. And I just would point that there's very different number of years of experience that some people are coming in when they're signing these contracts. And typically people actually do sign contracts for a higher downside guarantee the longer they've been with a company. And so if you look at Chavo Guerrero's uh, contracts, which are public record as part of the legal um, – the, the concussion lawsuit, you can see that his downside is continuing to grow time after time after time. Now, that doesn't mean that their total earnings is the same. There's many times that a guy is making far more when they're in the main events versus when they're in the mid card. But that said, it's it's very deceptive, I think, sometimes to try to assume 
this person is paid more than this person because it's inherently unfair versus maybe Sami Zayn is coming in with so much more experience than somebody who's coming in with a, no wrestling background at all. That is very strange when you compare X and Y. Now, if you believe that everybody who makes it up to Raw or SmackDown is, quote, on the same level because they're now main roster talent, that's one thing. I don't believe that. I, I honestly don't think that's the way they book in. They, they don't pay that way and they don't they don't conceive of things that way. I think the larger issue is that women don't get paid in WWE as much as men do because for decades, women haven't been taken seriously as wrestlers. The idea of having serious women's wrestling has only been started to become considered within the last couple of years, which they have, of course, branded as the women's revolution, which is you know a, a movement that they could have started uh, any number of years ago, certainly within the last 10 years sometime. I think they could have... Done, they're done, definitely done, behind done the something, times. Done something in terms along of... the lines. Done something along the lines of what they're doing now, which would have, which would widen their appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it definitely I, does. My I wife, understand. yeah, my wife prefers to watch when she'll, she'll say, "Oh, I like when they're doing, you know, the when I feel like it's an athletic competition, I'm seeing them really wrestle." And she'll say, I didn't feel that way about the other matches. And so, you know, it's funny to me, you know, <laughs> at times where we're in the Royal Rumble there, uh, just the juxtaposition of of people at times really felt kind of out of place between yeah. you know, the way Kelly Kelly and Michelle McCool uh, did that Hurricane Rana spot versus some of the other executions. And that's not to say everybody's crisp and perfect every time. But um, and a lot of those women hadn't been in the ring in a long time. But I but I do think it. It pronounced like how the standard of, of of work rate or the standard of performance quality across the years has developed, and um, also the difference between what it would take to get to the main roster then and now. That you know, a Stacy Keebler or a Tori Wilson would never be considered good enough to wrestle now. Right, and, uh, and it's not to say that like women's wrestling was was that much worse years ago, but that WWE didn't didn't demand, didn't have a, didn't, didn't hire women who were good wrestlers because that wasn't necessarily one of the, one of the attributes that they put a priority on years ago or even now for that matter. And the last thing I'll say is that there is one, to my knowledge, one large data set you can go examine if you really want to look at wrestling pay. And that I think is backed up by facts. And that is when WCW was sued in their racial discrimination lawsuit, they had to disclose the payroll and the contracts for everybody from 1996 to mid-2000s. And so we have all of those documents. I have painstakingly taken time to review all of these documents. I've worked with lots of crowdsources to be able to change all these documents into numbers that are on spreadsheets that you can look at. And you can go through and examine what were different people paid during those years. I'm just going to pull it up right now. You go to IndeedWrestling.com. I can type in WCW. And uh, I'm going to see that I have something called WCW contract documents 1996 to 2000 updated. And when you click on that, it takes forever to load, apparently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it brings up the list of all 352 people I have records for on the male side and then another 26 women that I have records for. And how much they were paid each year. Plus, it has details about what their contract actually said it was that was disclosed. So if you want to go see Tori Wilson um, negotiated a contract increase in October 2000, she gets um, she gets year one, two hundred thousand dollars, year two, two hundred thousand dollars and sixteen hundred dollars for every uh, day. She works over one hundred and twenty five days a year. So Tori Wilson, that's how much she was getting paid. Compare that to a nitro girl. Um, so let's look at uh, Chiquita. 
Chiquita made $15,000 in year one of her contract and uh, was then paid $500 per TV event. By the way, if you, if you Google Indeed Wrestling WCW salaries, I get the pages I think you're looking at now. Yeah. Um, Molly Holly, Miss Madness, she got – she had – her contract was for $105,000 a year. For year two, it was supposed to be 130000 I think I was reading at Diva Dirt that basically uh, when she contacted them, they said she was, they weren't renewing her contract. And that's when she basically said, I'm going to WCW or WWF. How do I get in? Dean Malenko, what can I do? Um, you know, it's very different pay for different people but you can go through this and you'll say wow i had no idea that you know lex luger's contract said that he was set to make 1.2 million dollars starting in 1999 and uh take it compared to someone like aj styles who signed a developmental contract and was paid 1300 dollars for the year and 20 uh twenty thousand eight hundred dollars according to the contract that he was given in a 1999 memo you know, it's very it's all over the place is my point. And if you really want to look at some some payments to see how much people are making, that's a great resource to kind of understand how different it could be per person. You know, when you have a Dennis Rodman who was making uh, five hundred thousand dollars in ninety eight and one point one seven four million dollars in ninety nine. And it, it, it's going to be very different because stars are given oftentimes these enormous paydays. And uh, it, it's really intriguing to kind of compare. And so if you want to look at a real data set, there's a real data set you can go examine. But it's 20 years old, and a lot of things have changed since then. Yeah. And I, I think the, the larger point being made, and this is and things I've heard people say in response to it, at least the Daily Beast article, is that, well, well, women will get paid you know, more like the men when they actually are in main events. And, and that, that's kind of exactly the point. Is that you look at other sports and look at sports similar to to wrestling? Look at UFC and Ronda Rousey became a major star for UFC. She became the number number two, if not number one, star at, at various points for UFC. And I see no reason why uh, women in 2018 in WWE couldn't also be there. There couldn't be other big time major stars on top of WWE who were women. Um, and I still see things in WWE like you know I think they. It seems to me that they decide who to push, and, and based on like, look at who's, who's who gets preferential treatment in the booking. I think like N- Nijax, Charlotte, and Alexa Bliss get get pushed more because they're seen as multi generational superstars. Not Alexa Bliss, but I think Alexa Bliss gets pushed because she's blonde and pretty. Whereas I think Sasha Banks and to to a greater extent Bailey don't get pushed as much. Uh, or, and don't get booked well because they they're not blonde and they're not multi generational superstars and uh, and even they've tried to like force the the narrative that like Sasha Banks is representing Eddie Guerrero to to some extent or whatever. But I I think my point is I, I think Sasha Banks and Bailey could be far bigger stars than they are, but the booking has limited them. And I would also say that your connection with the fans does in some way impede or promote your ability to get ahead so when you look at Rey Mysterio I would argue they haven't replaced Rey Mysterio even though he left and that the enormous out, outcome of, of interest in him it, the rumble is it is a artifact of the fact that people appreciated his connection both with kids with his merchandising with his style with his size with his style with everything you know it was interesting to them and you could say the same that if you come along and you are different in a than a lot of other things, you have an opportunity to possibly get ahead. And I'm not saying that they haven't cut the legs off lots of people who were different and were getting over and that some other political decision hampered their ability to get out. But 
I do personally believe that there is an element of you have to stand out in a way that connects with the fans. And when you do connect, you will, in fact, see some some, you know, revenue stream coming from that, that that people do want to pay more for that. And I think there's an opportunity with a Bailey. We saw that in NXT. And it's a shame right now that, you know, she, she's not being given an opportunity that uh, is putting her in that same limelight. And uh, we, we've continuously seen challenges to translate the popularity of NXT into WWE. I don't know if a Johnny Gargano would work right now in WWE. I would hope it would. I, I think these questions about like whether so and so would work, whether Bailey, why isn't Bailey working? It's like it's about the the Booker more than it is about the audience. It's like that's the obstacle to overcome for Johnny Gargano and for Bailey. It's not the audience. They already connected with the audience. It's a different audience on the main roster, absolutely. And there's different things that. That that wider audience that that works for them in different ways than the NXT audience, but the biggest obstacles are not so much the audience; it's the people that you have to deal with uh, on the creative side, namely Vince McMahon. Well, Vince McMahon owns a lot of voting shares in stock, and his stocks were thirty-four dollars and fifty-two cents right now. It's down two point six percent, but it was pretty darn high. It was it was near an all-time high for them, of just probably shy of thirty-six dollars uh, this past week here. They've had a pretty good run. Um, part of that run being driven by Morgan Stanley uh, putting out an analysis where they were they were I think pushing it up to what was it forty bucks was their buy price? Yeah, are we, we going to do Morgan Stanley now? Yeah, I'm I'm okay. I'm shooting through here, man. We're not stopping. Oh. It's yeah. happening because Benjamin uh, Swinebird uh, yeah. was an equity analyst, a CFA for Morgan Stanley. Uh, he was helped by Bronson Cousin and Cameron Monsoon Perone as research associates and he wrote a uh, a piece here that basically said the price target for WWE was an attractive industry view a stock rating of overweight and a price target of 40 bucks so um they they we got a copy of the analysis started taking a look at it again to kind of remind you some other people BTIG put about $36 price target on them uh JP Morgan Chase 37 Wells Fargo 43 Guggenheim 40 Needham 38 so a lot of people up in that 36 to 40 something dollar range Looking at it, and uh, when you read through these analyses, um, what comes across is that you know a, a very strong belief that WWE has a lot of eyeballs on it right now and is going to do a TV rights renewal. Their their cost base is not going to change all that much, but their ability to leverage their TV rights both domestically and internationally should go up by a lot. And the question basically is, how much is it going to go up? So. Um, let me just give my kind of overtake on this this uh, Morgan Stanley thing, and then I'll, I'll ask for yours. The first one is I'd say it did a really good job of breaking down the renewals. Uh, when you read this piece, it goes through both the renewal for WWE, but it talks a lot about UFC. It talks about different sports franchises that have been renewed by different networks and the the, the multipliers that they've received. Uh, I thought it does a really thoughtful M&A analysis, which um, – uh, that's mergers acquisitions. That's basically the whole theory of what if WWE sold to somebody? What would be the value of the company? Who would be interested in it? Uh, and make a lot of assumptions on that. And I'll get into kind of I think they they assume that you just you absorb a lot of overhead. And I think they're miscalculating some of the costs that WWE has as if other companies have them. No. So specifically, you have the WWE Performance Center. And you have a huge amount of cost that is associated there. And I don't think merging with someone else would make that cost in any way really be structured differently. But they're making a large assumption that that is not a big driver of cost for them. And I think when you look at their uh, corporate and other segment, that has been a big driver of cost. Same with lawsuits. 
and neither of those do I th- see going away or going lower when on a merger situation. Um, they don't talk anything about advertising rates, which I think is an enormous miss on this one and something that the JP Morgan case does much, much better. Uh, so I was really shocked to not see that. Their network analysis is incredibly conservative. They don't look at tiering. They don't look at price changes. They have very slow implied growth. Uh, for the years here, the numbers that Brandon and I just threw out there for what we thought WrestleMania could be are well above where I think they think it could be. Um, they also are a little too conservative in some areas, like their home video decline is like negative five percent a year. And I think it's going to go down a lot more than five percent a year. They're also incredibly conservative in both the licensing and the WWE shop and the digital media s- segments, which I think the revenue streams on those are going to go up by a lot in the next couple of years. And I think they're way understated. So that was my um, my take on this kind of Morgan Stanley piece. Uh, did you get a chance to read it through? And what what were some of your takeaways, Brandon? I did. I, I read I read it to the extent that I understood it. But uh, I, I thought there was some interesting stuff in there. I like that they use the phrase "the battle for eyeballs." The battle for eyeballs across TV and online has led to a rapid increase in content spending. Um, eyeballs is a word that George Berrios likes to use. He uh, he's a server of eyeballs, a provider of eyeballs. I just imagine him uh, rolling a, a cart through a hospital just full of cookie trays upon cookie trays of eyeballs that he is ready to deliver to various television partners throughout the world. Um, but no, I, they're predicting, what, a, a 1.7x increase in U.S. TV rights, and that seems to be a, you know, a, a rate that a lot of the, these other analyses agree with. Um, so all these uh, the, the declining raw ratings... And uh, whatever's going on with SmackDown has not, you know, the sky has not fallen on WWE yet, like uh, maybe some people were speculating a year or two ago. Yeah, um, so let, let's break ahead. down these renewal numbers in a second. But just overall, um, you talk about, you know, following the analysis. You read this, you read the Needham piece. Uh, of the two, which of those two companies would you trust to be your investment advisor more? You didn't like the Needham piece. I, I didn't I didn't think it was, it wasn't as in-depth. It was a much shorter analysis. Um Needham had had some other interesting stuff. I think that I liked. They 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 both made uh, subscriber predictions at least, so they went to that level of granularity at least. Well, if you don't go to that level of granularity, you should not be making stock predictions. If you do not break out what the PNL should look like for the next five years, then you're just you're just whistling dis- Dixie because you you need to I mean, be like a BTIG doesn't make that. Uh... At least not in their not in the analysis that we've seen. I haven't seen that. Well, they, they do a PNL for the next few years. Yeah, they they def, definitely do. They they give a PNL, but yeah, I I would say they don't necessarily go in depth. The Needham piece annoyed me because I've read the original Needham piece from 2014, and she's still recycling talking points from that. And the fact that four years later you have not improved your view of this company by learning from the mistakes more than just a. You know, again, still throws in meaningless jargon like Vince McMahon and The Rock are both third generation superstars. Oh, was that in this one? Yes, it's still in there. I see. I see. So things like that annoy the heck out of me. Um, well, it gives you some insight on the creative vision, doesn't it? <laughs> gives you insight on on how easy it is to slapdash a uh, updated uh, forecast for where you think the stock price should be when you see it exploding during the year and you realize you're behind the times and getting your new update in there. Um, I didn't. Uh, the- I didn't think the Needham piece actually dealt with even the TV rights renewals in a meaningful way, did it? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I was so tired from reading the the long Morgan Stanley piece by then that I didn't notice. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I just – I mean I, it, it it just didn't seem – it seems like to me that the Needham piece is much more focused on the value of the WWE network, whereas the Morgan Stanley piece is much more focused on the value of the TV rights renewal. 
And yeah. I would argue both of them are mistaken in their assumptions of where things are going to go. I think they're both like angling kind of in the wrong direction. Um, I think How ultimately the, the Morgan Stanley one is much closer to getting to the right answer. I just think that they're way too conservative on the network and they're ignoring the important factors of, of both what the growth rates are going to look like and ignoring the facts of the opportunity to tier and to gain a lot more price leverage from it is ultimately – I mean you and I have said this before. Ultimately, the network is not going to hit 2 million subs in the near future under the current model. So the best they can do not, is, is resegment the market to generate far more revenue from what they're doing. And the indexes that they put themselves against, the Netflixes of the world, are no longer themselves playing at the $10 level. So WWE is just needlessly discounting itself. And I understand that the TV rights renewal is worth far more than the, the network restructuring. But to, to ignore the fact that you need to do a network restructuring with a higher tiering, with a better price value, and with a more – ardent base that you're leveraging more to monetize rather than just assuming you can continue to capture a larger and larger share of quote unquote WWE casual fans worldwide. Yeah. I do think that was an oversight that neither one of these analyses discussed the prospect of tiering, which it seems like they're going to do. And, and the, the JP Morgan chase case did deal with. So I, I feel like if you take all of the cases and put them together, BTIG even included about the streaming rights, because there's a small amount of streaming right value that is being underwhelmed in this conversation. I think if you take all four of these things, you have a balanced view. But if you only read one of these, you'd be way off base because I think each one of them has a flaw. And uh, it's something that wasn't discussed in either one. The Morgan Stanley piece talked about how ratings have stabilized, the decline in ratings. Uh, Raw may still be going down, but SmackDown at least has stabilized. Um, and you're saying it's a false, it's a false stabilization, right? Right. Well, if we look at 2007 compared to 2016, uh, just looking from July on, because remember the brand split only started in July 2016. And if you look at so the second half of 2017 and compare it to the second half of 2018, uh, Ju July is down. Let's let's throw away July, though, because only half of July 2016 had the brand split and it had the big draft episode. So let's start with August. Let's say August was still down 5% versus August 2016. September, October, November, though, were up versus the, the previous year in the same month. Uh, but December was down 5% versus December 2016. So I, I would still stabilizing? I, I don't know. And I think in, in the media environment that we live in here where you, you've got so many media options and DVRs and things like that, I, I'm not sure that the, that the SmackDown rating has stabilized going I, forward. I will give you, if you are in single digits, positive or negative, I will call you stable. When you, like, when I look at the raw ratings 2016... Let me just read those numbers starting January to December. Negative 13%, negative 12%, negative 16, negative 10, negative 14, negative 16, negative 18, negative 17, negative 20, negative 15, negative 8, negative 17. That's a lot of decline. That, that's the, the month in 2017 versus that same month the previous year, by the way. So no people well, that was 16. That was, I was just reading 2016 numbers. Okay. So I just want to give that as an example of that's where I see that picture. That is in decline. That is shrinking. You are losing viewers. You are losing – actually, you're losing share rating here. You're losing eyeballs. Um, SmackDown, when you're saying I got a couple months down, a couple months up, some are positive, some are negative. They're all in single digits. I would call that stable. I, I can agree with them that there's some stability going on. What, what I need to see is you know, more stability. 
I love that January to April, we saw positive growth with this brand split because that suggests that by creating a product that then promoted their brand and their their show as important, going live and, you know, treating it as first rate helped them. And I would love to see where it's going to be in 2018, like you say, because it will be interesting to see a like to like comparison. And and if there's anything that WWE loves to do, it's to switch metrics up so they're never giving us like to likes so that people they can make claims that are very hard right. to true or not false. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the TV rights renewals. Um, I'm going to break it down because we say things like 1.7 X, but that doesn't mean anything to anybody. So let me let me put some numbers down. Um, basically, the U.S. Uh, right now in 2015, they think the U.S. rights were worth 121 million. 2016, they're guessed 133. 2017, they're guessing 146. 2018, uh, they're expecting about 161. So. You can see with with them, they're going from 120 million to almost 160 million between 2015 and 2018. So the the rates renewal here has been pretty good for WWE um, over this time. What they think is basically they're going to move somewhere between uh, 192 million as their average value for the contract to up to 300 million, and that's the difference of a 1.5x to a 2.5x. So if you when you said that 1.7 number. What that is is that's a little bit north of 200 million. I think it's about 219 million dollars is where they were saying it's approximately around uh, as an average value in AAV. They call average annual value. So if you took the the whole length of the contract and then you took the midpoint, that's what they're saying it would be worth. So and you're so, saying it's, it's not going to be the 243 that Morgan Stanley says it is. Well, I think again that's that it will be the 243, but that's the total number I think that they're getting at. Well, no, you're right. You're right. The the 243 was a was a WWE NBC number, and I do think they think it's higher. So what they do is they build out a case, and they basically say we think it's going to be between 1.5 and 2.5. And what are we basing it on? Well, we're looking at NBC, and we're saying what did you pay for NASCAR? What did you pay for EPL? What did you pay for the Kardashians? And they're they're looking at those numbers and saying what were the ratios kind of change. And from that, they're coming out and saying we think it's at least 1.7, which is 219 million. And in fact, we think it's a little higher than two than 219 million because UFC was already sitting at 200 million as their offer. And we think WWE is going to get more than this UFC lowball offer. And UFC is sitting between 1.7 and 3x renewal. So we think that WWE is going to do even better than 1.7. That was their rationale in the piece is basically they said if UFC can get more than 1.7, then WWE can get more than 1.7. Now, I think that completely misses the advertising rates question. Which is that's a huge hole, right? To 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 just assume that you know Bob over there gets paid uh, got one point seven percent his old pay, so I should get one point seven times the old pay. But you're not bringing the same skill set or the same deliverance delivery to this this company. So I, I I think that's the one area where Morgan Stanley falls short. Where J P Morgan spent a lot more time saying, well, what is the ad rate worth? What are the viewers rates worth? What is the halo effect worth? And which kind of, would you say they're underestimating or not looking at the difference between brand value between UFC and WWE? I think they're they're definitely misunderstanding the ad rates because uh, UFC that, that's brand value, isn't it? Yes, yes, you could put it that way. I, I just meant UFC on a pure ad rate basis is getting two to four x times what WWE is getting. So the idea that UFC can be paid twice as much from their 140 contract is not the same as saying WWE can be paid twice as much. Because, in fact, the J.P. Morgan analysis suggests once you get north of $200 million, you're bordering on where you might not be necessarily getting the same value for the ad rates that you're at. Now, if you believe you can improve the ad rates on your television show over time and you're continuing to do that, then, yes, you can choose a higher number. 
and I do believe that WWE is going to continue to get a slightly better ad rate this year than they did last year. And, and, and that's just because they've worked for so many years to lobby and work in this direction. And I think it is beginning to work for them. But I, I also think it's, it's foolish to just assume I, UFC can get 1.7 to 3 times their number. So therefore, WWE gets 1.7 to 3 times their number. That's silly in my mind. So I, I think Morgan Stanley got a little simplistic on that element there. This WWE's viewership being quite a bit higher than UFC's viewership, does that offset any of the difference in, in ad rates? Some between the two companies, some, and that's where you would then go to the argument about television erosion, right? To say, if my viewership is eroding on my number one show at this rate and the ad rates are going up, what point does the calculus say I should do this or not do this? Ultimately, what we see is, you know, UFC is in a tough position because they don't have these big stars that are marketable, the Connors and the, the Rondas that they can quickly point to. They have stars. They have a following. They have things. But they also just posted one of their worst TV numbers of the year uh, last weekend. So, I mean, th- that says something else. Um, WWE also is renewing in UK and India. For UK, they assumed between 1.7x and 2x. Basically, they said – we think that the UK is going to go somewhere between 42 million and 51 million. That's 1.5 to 2 And they specifically looked at Formula One renewals, and they suggested it might be about 1.7x, again, about $48 million. So that would be a, another big increase for, for WWE in terms of how much they're getting, you know, almost 70% more than they get now. Um, and then for India, they assumed that they could get somewhere between the 1.5 and the 2x, and that's, again, going to go between 34 million and 41 million. And they point out that in India, Sony recently lost the India Premier League cricket to star. And so they might be more incentivized to really pay extra to keep some kind of, you know, intellectual property that is specific to their networking, their network. And so Raw or WWE as a whole as might be very valuable to them. And so they're guessing about a 1.7x there, too. So this 1.7x number comes from all of these different pieces. But essentially, they really say we think the 1.7x is probably the low end for NBC and the real number, instead of it being 219, is closer to 243, I think is what they estimated the value is. And to put that in perspective, they said, you know, the NBA on ESPN and ABC, that's worth $1.4 billion. The NBA on TNT is worth $1.167 billion. Um, NHL on NBC is worth $200 million. Um, the 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 low number for UFC is two hundred million, and it's probably going to be well over two hundred million. And and WWE would be close to probably two forty on their average number in the middle. So, uh, they're guessing around that two forty number. I think that's, you know, I, like I say, I think it's close. It's it's very similar to what JP Morgan gets at. And what I like is the triangulation of it to say JP Morgan got around this number, Morgan Stanley got this number, and they use slightly different methods. So I appreciate that about element of it. And I also appreciate that we're not talking 2x, we're not talking 3x. Um, I do worry that India might be getting overvalued personally in some analysis and undervalued in other analysis. Like BTIG, I think, was throwing out a number like 70 million for the India contract. I think that's ridiculous. I think uh, India – Because they highlight that they lost cricket and that maybe there was some play by Facebook 
Yeah. So they, they go really big on theirs. And I think that's a good example of where reading another analysis can open up your eyes to say, oh, that's where they're going to get to this number. But I think they're overestimating what India is worth. I think the UK is a much better market for WWE. We see that, especially because India doesn't have a secondary market play for them. That's very strong right now. I mean, the fact they could only run one house show there speaks to the to the level of acceptance they have where they might be a popular television show, but they don't really have all these other revenue streams compared to the UK where – they're close to starting another brand based in the UK. Yeah. That that market clearly India is not ready for their other two revenue streams which are network and live events. They spent a while in the the deal here basically debating about the MMA and I think it's great that Morgan Stanley spent the time doing this because a um it's a great thing for people who love to speculate on this they should go read to understand all the different elements you have to bring in to try to understand how an M&A might work for if WWE were to sell itself to a new corporate owner. But a lot of it goes down to that they basically look at different um, different ratios of companies that have, have tried to um, be valued similar to WWE and then use those ratios to come up with kind of what the deal value would be for them. And so essentially it's a way of saying, well, WWE might have a market cap or such. Right now, let me look here on, on Google Finance. It says the market cap for WWE is $2.66 billion, which is perfect because in the document here, uh, Morgan Stanley estimated it at $2.65 billion. But they say the deal implied value of it would be closer to $3.64 billion. And what that means is basically you're not going to – you're not going to pay WWE the value of the company. You have to give them a premium to incent them to want to change hands, right? Um, and, and so – they're saying it would be worth about $3.6 billion, to put it in perspective. Uh, UFC sold for a little over $4 billion, right? Yep, right. So That's what I was going to say. Yep. So that, that was interesting. And so they basically then go through and say, all right, we think the company would be worth $3.64 billion. And then what, you know, let's, let's compare their Kagers on revenue and EBITDA and EBIT and, and um, P&E and, and debt and all these other things to these other companies. And they compare it to Lionsgate's Entertainment and MSG Networks and Formula One and Discovery and Scripps Network, which does like HGTV and the Food Channel, um, AB, AMC Networks and MSGN, which is the MSG Networks, which is a little different than the other MSG. One is like, you know, the buildings and one is more like the uh, uh, entertainment network, I believe. Um and what you see when you do that is the revenue Kager for the for WWE is very good. The EBIT, EBITDA Kager is really good, but and their debt level is actually really low compared to a lot of these companies. But their PE ratio, the you know, uh, is way high. It's you know, it's a forty four x thing compared to like Lionsgate at thirty two or compared to like Discovery Network at ten. And so they do all this estimate estimates to figure out you know how much could you save if you did a um a hypothetical MMA and they basically suggest that they could save $75 million of corporate overhead if they basically were bought by a big company, which I think is a little high in terms of estimates just because I, I have a, it's hard to sometimes think of WWE being run like a normal company, you know, right. It's, it's very hard to see it as part of that, you know, the conglomerate. And it, I don't know if the Turner model is, is relevant in today's industry to even look at it that way anymore. Just because, you know, you're spending so much on your developmental league and on these other assets that you're trying to kind of reclassify and change around. And it's a big question mark about whether or not the kind of company that want to buy WWE would also understand how to deal with all the content that they have 
and use it meaningfully because in some ways they're more like a Netflix or a Hulu or an Amazon. And then in other ways, they're much more like a live touring company, like a Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah. That, that is always a concern, a concern that looms. Like when you think about wrestling future and you look at the, the past of like, well, when, when WCW was run by or overseen by people who didn't come from the wrestling business is, is wrestling such a weird business that it really needs to be overseen by someone who is a, you know, deep down wrestling person as much as Vince McMahon would like to think of himself as a broad entertainment promoter. He, he's someone who's been engrossed in the wrestling industry for decades. And, uh, I don't know what the, what the answer to the question is about whether, you know, if, if WWE someday was owned by a large media company, would it be overseen and, con- and controlled and, you know, and supervised in the right way to make sure that it still produces, or I don't know if it still currently produces, but it, to make sure that it, it produces a product that's at least as good as the product that it produces now. I don't know. That, that is a question. And, and it was intriguing looking at all the um, numbers that Morgan Stanley puts behind their analysis in terms of things. I think the one thing you called out, which was kind of funny, was for some reason they assumed that they could jump the number of live events from 344 to 386 next year. Yeah, which was just baffling because it's like, what do they mean three eighty six? How how are they going to five lives going to do a tour full time or something? I don't know. Yeah, how are they going to do forty one more live events? That's basically saying one a week. Uh, and while I agree that you know guys today work less when they have two brands than when there's only one brand for them to work on, it's still going to be pretty hard to find forty one more events and talent to put there unless you're willing to incredibly saturate your attendance numbers with low, low, low attendance. You know, you could, if you want to treat your NXT tour like it's a live tour, your number of live events is going to shoot up because there's a whole lot of live events that WWE does every year right now that they're not, they like to ignore the fact that they're doing them. In fact, I count actually that they did 386 live events this year. Um, yeah, just on numbers, De- right? Well, I count it for W for twenty seventeen they did three hundred and eighty six. Oh. So I'm I'm not even sure where they're getting their number of three forty four, to be really honest. Um maybe they're just counting main roster. Yeah. Well I'm only they're, counting. They're, they're main probably roster. taking the first three quarters and making an assumption about the fourth quarter. Must and be. they're probably and because and, they're probably looking at the KPIs, which are only main roster counts, right? And the KPI slide for attendance, it's just they're they're just counting the events for for the main roster. So they're probably looking at that, okay, Q one did this, Q two did that, Q Q three did that, Q Q four is probably gonna do about that. And those are only main roster numbers. Yeah. So they're off a little bit in some of their math they're due. But you know, on the on the flip side, um, you know, they're they're basically suggesting that they're gonna go somewhere between two point two million in twenty seventeen for total attendance all the way up to about two point five million by twenty twenty. Um, still averaging 6,000 a show. And there's that big question to say, you know, if you continue to increase the number of live events, are you going to stay at or below where you are? Are you going to drop well below 6,000 a show or is it going to be very close to that? And keeping in mind that North America only averages, you know, 6,000, 5,900, 5,700 now by 2015, 2016, 2017. You know, we're, we're, we're well below that average. And so international has to stay super hot. And there's only so many international markets that well support WWE for live touring right now. Yeah. And I think this is a, a situ- this is a metric that could be affected by, by better creative. And if Vince McMahon decides to go play football by 2020 or spend more of his time running the XFL and even in the lead up to 2020, uh, maybe things could get better and maybe that would help. Uh, other areas of business like attendance you know we're gonna on thursday have q4 results coming out for wwe uh 
question where we're going to end the year. I think uh, Needham said the consensus view for WWE revenue was about seven hundred ninety-three million. Um, I I was guessing seven ninety-four. Um, you know, I've seen numbers as high as almost seven ninety-nine. If they break eight hundred, that will be a surprise. I don't think they'll break eight hundred, but they would love to, obviously. Um, for Obita, they had promised that they would get over a hundred million. In fact, they had given new guidance last quarter, so um, it will be somewhere between probably one hundred two and one hundred ten. I I'll go high. I'll say one hundred nine. I'm going to go kind of out of the blue. I don't know why I went that high. I'm actually kind of baffled why I did that. Um, for total attendance for the year, uh, Morgan Stanley wrote 2,282,221. I have no idea how to count this number exactly right. I'm going to guess 2,336,725. That's without NXT and Access, 386 events. But again, if you are doing a total attendance number where you throw those numbers in, it's going to go higher. If, you know, the number of events you're looking at is less than 386, then I and WWE are not aligned on what we're counting as an event. So right. it, it gets kind of confusing to me sometimes about trying to count events because, you know, does the tribute to the troops show where 10,000 people were there, but it was free? Where does that, what, what happens with that? You know, right. that that's hard to count those kind of shows. Um, my, well, considering that we believe this is a, the attendance numbers that they publish in, in KPIs and in quarterly reports, we believe those are all paid. So maybe something like a, f- a free show for Tribute the Troops is not counted under that. Yeah. That would be my guess. Yeah, and it's one show. So, I mean, it's it's not a huge distorter, but I'm just giving an example of a show where, you know, this happened, this is an event, but if you don't want to count it, then it's going to give you a slightly different average. Um, average North America attendance, I think Morgan Stanley suggested 5,731. I went a little higher on my number for 6,050. I'll be very curious to see what it, what it really says. Um, I believe the running average from previous years is like 6,000, 6,000, 6,000, 5,900. Well, North America attendance average was about 5,700 or 5,900. I, I mean for the years, for, for the last few years. Yeah, that's true. So I, I think it's going to be closer to 6,000 than 5,700 personally. Um, the uh, so, so that was some numbers there. I think if you get your hands on this Morgan Stanley analysis, it's worth reading. Uh, I think they do a good job of, of exploring kind of the more difficult questions that people love to ask. And it's a good kind of um, course on how you answer those kind of questions in terms of, okay, if you wanted to imagine a merger scenario, how would you evaluate the company? How would you put a valuation on it? And then how would you come up with kind of what the savings would come from that valuation? So it gives you an insight into how financial analysts kind of break that stuff down. On Thursday, we'll uh, get the results. Brandon and I will probably be a lot more focused on all the the 10Q that will come out later in that day that has all the fun little details in it. And then Are also, you going to be available? I thought you were going to be in Canada. I'm going to be in Canada. I'll be looking at it. I just don't know whether I'll okay. be around to talk to you about it until that night. So we'll see what happens. But uh, it'll be fun. It's always a good time. Um, talk to me a little bit about what Ring of Honor announced. Ring of Honor announced today I saw what looks to be a press release. Ring of Honor is going to launch an OTT service called Honor Club. There's no date in the release that I saw. It just said an imminent launch. The, the launch is imminent for Honor Club. It's $9.99 a month or $99.99 for the year. So you basically save 20 bucks by committing to a year in advance. Or you can buy the VIP membership for $120 a year, and that includes free access to Ring of Honor's pay-per-views. It wasn't clear to me whether that meant like current pay-per-views and whether that meant 
pay-per-views live, like on the W Network? Yeah, my, my guess would be that they're say, saying that you could watch the live pay-per-view stream if you pay the 120 Otherwise, it will show up on the network, but it's delayed. But I, I'm, I'm curious. cannibalizing pay-per-view here? I don't know. I don't know. I'm really curious about that myself to say, are you basically saying that you can either pay 10 bucks a month? Well, you pay 10 bucks a month kind of the either way, right? The other way is you have yeah. to pay in advance. But basically that you pay 10 bucks a month and you have to pay extra to watch it live or you have to wait however long a day and see it. Or you can pay 120 bucks, which is equal to 10 bucks a month, but you get a full year and then you get to see everything live too and you don't have to pay extra. Mm-hmm. I don't know. In addition, yeah, go ahead. I Any don't more? know. I'm just checking right now to see if Honor Club has been registered as a oh, as a, uh, a trademark. Trademark. It up, has not been registered, according. Yeah, to I looked up Ring of Honor stuff the other day, and I did not see anything like that there. They have very few trademarks. Yes, they do. They they do have very few. Yes, they have very few. <laughs> yeah. Um, in addition to live streaming ROH pay per views and on tour events, it, and it sounds like they're going to live stream their basically their house shows is what I got out of this. Um, if you're a, a member of, of this OTT service, you get 15% off tickets and merchandise purchases that you make online through their website. They're going to open an ROH forum, uh, which is, uh, which was, a, you know, there's a, a message board called the ROH forum back in the day. It wasn't there. I never participated in it, but I know of it. They're going to reopen a, a message board that only apparently members will be able to access. Sounds like the observer board, um, Platforms at launch will only be desktop and mobile, and I'm guessing that's going to be mobile through an internet browser. And they, uh, it sounds like eventually they'll have an ROH app available on Android and iOS. Eventually they, they say it'll be on Roku, Apple TV, and something called Android TV. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds like a comparable product to Apple TV, I would guess. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, um, I think it's good that they're doing this. I think it's another... Uh, interesting example. I'd love to hear Lobby's take on it to see, you know, what does this mean for Sinclair kind of choosing to uh, uh, create a digital platform for themselves? How much of yes, this is Lobby? Right? Tweet us your take. Yeah. Uh, and I'd also be curious to know, you know, what is the library? You know, I think that's that's a big question to yeah. everybody here. Is, is that everything? Is, what are they doing about the copyrighted music? And and how far back does it go? How quickly do pay-per-views go from being on demand, become on demand does it include all matches? Does it, you know, because at, at times there was even things where it was like some things could be sold on, could be shown, but they couldn't be on DVD or couldn't be on the replay or, you know, I always wonder about all that stuff. So be intriguing to see how that all works. Um, and then also what names everyone's using, you know, <laughs> these matches here. Uh, the All Japan also said that they're launching a streaming service. I, I think it said 900 yen would be the price which is usually it's about 100 yen is is a dollar. So it's a little bit less than $10. Uh, New Japan, of course, is 999 yen. So you'll save yourself 10% by going to All Japan. I don't, know if we, 99 yen. I don't know if we have any details yet more about this service, about you know who's doing this. Um, there's a belief that it would have a live stream for All Japan. So if you want to see Joe Doring's giant fuzzy coat, you can finally see it live. Um, I was just going through and thinking, wow, it's it's kind of weird that in a place where Netflix is not that popular and, you know, uh, streaming pay-per-view never really took off, there is New Japan World, which launched in December of 2014, does live streams and has a giant library. There's Pro Wrestling Wave, which started the Wave Network in June of 2016. There's Stardom World, which originally was a YouTube channel uh, for 500 yen, and then it moved to its own website in uh, July of 2016. And I think it's closer to like $7.50 now, so it's probably, you know, a little bit more expensive. 
And uh, the YouTube channel was interesting because I, I read a little bit about how originally there was all these requirements that like if you wanted to be in France, you had to have French language and you weren't allowed to basically get around it if you're a paid channel. And so it was a real hassle for them. Um, DDT Universe uh, is 900 yen that launched in January of 2017. They also do live streams. And then, of course, they have all their other ancillary promotions, you know, DNA and Basara and Ganpro and, and so forth. You have Big Japan just launched in November of 2017 for 888 yen. Um, BJW Core. Yeah. Uh, a great name. Nico Nico Pruo used to have a YouTube channel, but YouTube killed paid channels back in November of 2017. In a story that I, I remember us talking about, but I don't think I really internalized it completely. But basically, yeah, like Beyond was affected by that too. Beyond Wrestling had a YouTube uh, OTT service, basically. Yeah, that they had, they've been like moved to Powerbomb, basically as a reaction, is my understanding. And there's a um, a promotion called Marvelous, which is a, a women's Yoshi um, promotion, and they're on something called The Fresh Live. Uh, freshlive.tv, which is a, a fun little rat hole you to go down if you're curious to see crazy Japanese programming. Um, I found something called, was it like coffee can basketball today I was watching, which was, <laughs> it was, it's, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like handball and basketball, except for you're playing and is a giant pole with a tiny little, like kind of a coffee can sized basket. And you're, you're kind of passing and shooting for that. So, it was, it, but it was like the translation in English was called like coffee can basketball. So wow. I was very curious. So yes, fresh, fresh TV has a fun little, uh, uh, rat hole for you to go down. If you're, you're curious about strange, uh, different programming, but yeah. as far as like Netflix, not being popular in Japan and, and look at all these, uh, pro wrestling promotions that have OTT services, even though Netflix isn't popular there. I don't know. I think it's, it's just a fact of like, I don't know. That's the best option for them to try to monetize what they have. Isn't it? Like, well, and someone, someone was pointing out to me that, like, there's a very similar provider for a lot of these services, that um, there's a there's a specific streaming company that's gotten very involved with a lot of this. They said specifically... Um, like the pivot uh, share of Japan, maybe? Uliza, U-L-I-Z-A. Uh, and he, he mentioned that uh, Big Japan, Stardom, Wave all use the same provider. So it's also possible that it's a case where you have the same company kind of going to each person and saying, hey, would yeah. you like to do this? Mm-hmm. I have them. Yeah. And then, you know, I can I have all this background. I have all the support. We can do this. I have the billing. And, you know, the, the one thing I will always say about Japanese wrestling fans is that they've always been very, um, very promotion centric is what the story seems like. You know, when I listen to the stories of FMW versus Wing. You know, and they talk a lot about how there was wing fans and there was FMW fans. And it's like they weren't into deathmatch wrestling. They were into that promotion or this promotion. And it, it, it's something where they've always spent more money on these promotions. You know, when you look at historically at like the gate numbers and whatnot, that a smaller group of people would spend a lot of money and promote and support these companies. And so I do think that there's something to it that like there's a lot more interest in kind of trying to support the fan base that you have and they're willing to spend money, even though there might not be a lot of them. The ones that are yeah. there are much more likely versus in the U S where you have flow sport and you can think of the broad spectrum of, of promotions that were still being covered there. And yet there was so little uh, adoption of it. Yeah. I, th- I think in Japan, there's a, a, a cultural thing that's different from wrestling and say in the United States in that you see that in, in wrestlers and in fans, like, you know, 
someone like Daisuke Sekimoto, who's very talented, will probably always stay with Big Japan, even though he's super talented, because there's this uh, notion of loyalty to the promotion that you started with, to the company that you started with. And there's even fans who are, I think, like when Noah brought in all those Suzuki-gun guys from New Japan, I think there was a little bit of a backlash from the Noah fans who wanted their Noah guys. Yeah. And I even, I even remember like watching the All Japan versus New Japan promotional stuff in 2000 and like, Toshiaki Kawada walking down the, the ramp at the Tokyo Dome in this New Japan Tokyo Dome show and people throwing garbage at him, even though, like, there wasn't any, like, big heated angle or promo that he did, like, saying, you know, New Japan sucks or anything. It's just that all Japan guy in New Japan, you know, New Japan world, no pun intended, you know, you're not supposed to be here. And there's some sort of rejection of that for whatever reason. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think it's intriguing to me about just that that mentality that you could call it provincial or promotional where, you know, they're able to support that much and and I think that's that's great. And it's and is that does it, is that like a wider thing in Japanese culture like it just for an average worker is is that isn't that the thing like you work for one, most people work for one company their entire lives. There's certainly a lot more of that going on. Yeah, I, I think it's it's changed, and so I don't know if for entertainment purposes. You know, it's similar to you know the 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 girl groups or the boy bands or whatnot, where you know they they have these very dedicated groups of fans. And one of the reasons physical media is so popular is because you know you you integrate it with that, where you can sometimes do like offers where you buy the CD and that helps you get the tickets or gets you points in the the fan club type thing. And so we, we've seen a lot of different approaches there where physical media still lives on in, in Japanese culture in a way that is very different than how it's ended up in Western culture. Uh, and so I, I just think it's it's tough for me to know all that much in terms of why it's so popular. And I don't know how popular it is. I mean, some of these services might only have a few hundred people subscribing, but it's interesting to know that it is happening and, and it's continuing to grow. And of course, there's also that element that so many pro wrestling companies in the past were affiliated with a TV network that it makes it complicated for those ones to launch, right? So for years and years, there's always the question about could New Japan or All Japan or Dragon Gate for that matter launch because don't isn't it a TV company that owns the rights and the TV company is not comfortable putting the digital media online. Right. Like I don't, I, I don't expect the entire All Japan library to be part of this All Japan OTT service, right? Because I think that that video library is probably owned by NTV, which which is the TV network that aired All Japan back in the day and then ended up airing Noah when Noah split off from All Japan. And I, I'm under the impression that NTV owns that stuff. Exactly. So, And I've heard that Dragon Gate, one of the reasons they can't have a streaming service is, is similar. Um, it's concerns about that. I don't know. I, I think Dragon Gate has appeared on Nico Nico or things like that in the past. So I'm not a hundred percent, but yeah, they've done numerous pay-per-views through Nico Nico. Yeah. Um, so intriguing kind of stuff going on there. Uh, the rumor of course being that, you know, Super Bowl here in my hometown right now yeah. or my adopted hometown, uh, but does not sound like WrestleMania will be here anytime soon. Cause WrestleMania 35 oh. is reportedly going back to MetLife stadium. According to, right to a barstool report and uh, you just wrote this question simply why does wwe seem to be quickly repeating cities like new orleans and new new york so so quickly as opposed to maybe hitting more places in the the united states i wrote that question because that seems to be the question everyone's asking they i think people want wrestlemania to be in their hometown or at least closer to them than it, than it is and, and they're disappointed that it's ah oh, it's back in new york again I, I and again I, I love pissing off the listeners, but I don't think we're ever going to see a WrestleMania in Indianapolis again. I don't care how beautiful your stadium is, 
I think until you literally build a gold statue of Vince McMahon and give him all the money in tax credits, you're not going to see it going to Indianapolis because I don't think he thinks of that as a city that he thinks is on the level of hosting WrestleMania. And and I, I'm sure that annoys people, but I would feel that way for Buffalo and Rochester and places that I'm much closer to, you know, Syracuse, Albany. I don't think any of them are going to get a WrestleMania because I think they have a notion about what tier of a city it has to be to get them the media that they feel is important. And then at the same time, what tier is going to be attractive to out-of-town people. So I think going to warm weather, weather places is attractive to a lot of people, and these cold weather places are a possible hindrance. And the only way you can overcome a cold weather area is that if you then trump it with either an enormous population or a very special attraction. Yeah. And going back to New York uh, or New Jersey, really, right? But still, they're going to be close enough to New York to you know maybe get some extra mainstream media that they wouldn't get otherwise because it's right there in New York where all these media outlets have offices and so forth. And, you know, they, they've had some pretty good deals in the past with some of these stadiums, and I wouldn't be surprised if it helps them a lot to go where they're familiar, uh, just because there is that element of you, the devil you know, where it comes to the load in, the load out, the, the setup, the structure, the amenities, you know, is how is that going to be done? For New Orleans, I think it was a special case where New Orleans made a really big push that they wanted WWE back so quickly because they were doing, what, their 300th anniversary of of being a city and so they wanted to do a big thing about that mm-hmm. and so it, it's it's weird i agree you know for a while there the the formula was figure out where the new nfl stadium was built and follow it but the reality is i don't expect them ever to come to minneapolis to the twin cities because we'll never give them the tax credits that they're looking for so maybe your best bet right now is to follow all the uh, fights going on with amazon and figure out which cities are the most willing to get on their knees and beg yeah, there's never been a WrestleMania in Minnesota, has there? No, <laughs> unless you call the Wrestle Rock. Or... No, you got the Wrestle Rock Rumble though. You should be happy with that. Hey, did I? Do you hear me complaining? <laughs> um, so that's that's all I have to say about that. I'm I'm not shocked, and also I just think sometimes people get a little um. They, they get a little optimistic about the fact that there's an NFL city, NFL team in their city, and that means that they're going to qualify. And I think, honestly, the, the three elements that WWE is looking for is, number one, tax breaks, number two, um, warm weather, and number three, uh, population base. And and the more of those boxes you check, or number four, uh, an affinity from the guy that books uh, WWF stadiums. And I think more often than not, the devil they know is the one they like more. So when they're going to a place a lot, one of the reasons they go to the place a lot is they like going there because it's easier on them in some way. And what was the personal connection that made you think maybe they're going to go to Minneapolis? Was there was somebody associated with the stadium that's now working for WWE or something like All that? All the way around. The guy that used to okay. book the stadiums was – the guy. there's a guy he would book – he worked for a stadium in Abu Dhabi. He then went to go work for WWE. A WWE then started to tour Abu Dhabi. Then he left WWE and he went to the Viking Stadium. And then WWE was looking for a place to run WrestleMania. And it made a lot of sense to me that they were going to come here. In fact, they went as far as there was a video produced by the new stadium people. And at one point, someone referred to wrestling coming here and it being WrestleMania. Um, Kind of obliquely, but they they were referring to it in a way that made it seem like it was going to happen. And we know there was negotiations. Ultimately, it sounds like they just couldn't come to an agreement on how much money to basically – give them 
in whatever form of, of incentives that they come up with these days. And that is very consistent with what has happened with a lot of things. That's why there's not a lot of filming, you know, movie stuff that happens in, in Minnesota is we're very uh, uh, reluctant to kind of go into the snow bait world and, and fight that fight for that. So I'm not surprised at all that, you know, it, it was always a tough sell in my mind because Minnesota at this time of year or at WrestleMania time is a, is a crapshoot. It can be good. It can be nasty. Um, and I also think well, you, there's a dome there still, right? There's a dome inside. It will be fine. You're right. Inside it will be fine. But I, I just think um, you, you run the risk. And, and is the MetLife Stadium? That's an outdoor stadium, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay, so then they're they're going back to that whole risk. If if this is all true, and we don't know. I mean, I've heard other places confirmed, and then at the last minute, it all fell to pieces. So we'll have to. I see. mean, it could it could rain in any stadium, no matter where you are in the country. Yeah, we do have a dome stadium. I I do think though that the appeal of traveling to Minnesota is not as high. On the flip side, we do have a great airport, and we're a good hub. And so there's that element, too, which is I think they want a good travel hub. And like New Orleans, for instance, is not a great travel hub, to be really honest. Uh, I just bought my plane tickets, and I spent more on my plane tickets than I did on WrestleMania tickets. And, you know, that's that's not unusual, but I spent a lot more on plane tickets than I did on WrestleMania tickets because it was really hard to get seats and direct flights. So. Uh, I, you know, especially for the days I was planning on traveling. Um, so I, I did buy my plane tickets. I am going. So, uh, I think, yeah. uh, so, so far I have my progress ticket. I have my brunch ticket. I have my mailbag ticket. I have my WrestleMania ticket and I, I need to find at least one more thing to do during that time there. Yeah. You're all ready to go. I, I, I've still uh, got a plane ticket. I may, may or may not end up going. We'll see what happens. So if your name uh, is Howard Brandon and you would like mm-hmm. to uh, uh, go to WrestleMania, all you have to do is drive to Buffalo and you can get a free plane ticket. That's right. Just go to the Buffalo airport and just say, hey, it's me. Here's my ID. Um, I think it's amazing we haven't seen a, a WrestleMania yet in this stadium era of WrestleManias that hasn't just faced a downpour. That's yeah. Right. Well, you know, Vince, Vince is loved by God. That's how he's going to live forever. That's right. His deal with the devil. Um want to talk of you wanted to talk i mean you 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 build out our our set list here and for those that i'm the producer and the audio engineer those that want to well i wouldn't claim that today but uh i'll give you a producer ha. um yes. th- those of you want to read the notes for the show you can go to uh p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash russellnomics you can sign up for five dollars a month five dollars a month not a week per month that a gets month. you access to all the bonus audio we're doing Plus, it gives you access to all the notes that we do. And the notes that we do are uh, – they're very well-researched, well-thought-out, yes. full of graphs and numbers. and yes. images. It is not uncommon for us only to cover maybe two-thirds of what's in a document. And you'll you'll be amazed at how much easier it is to just read our notes than to listen to us ramble. So if you, right. you – you'll, you'll be smarter than all your wrestling friends if you just take a glance at these once a week. Once a week and then you've got the bonus audio – Five dollars a month—that only comes out to like a dollar sixteen a week. What a, what a deal! And what's funny is is that you you will put together this list, and uh, sometimes I won't uh, check it until mm-hmm. uh, you know the very end of the uh, uh, to the day of the show, and then look at the list for the first or second time. And so, oh, this is intriguing. Okay, so yeah, you asked about exceptional clearance. I was trying to find it in the article here, and I finally did. Um, and so this is going back to that Daily Beast article about sexual uh, sexual assault from Vince McMahon allegedly at a Boca Raton uh, tanning salon, and in two thousand six. In two thousand six, and then the questions about you know why did this uh, not go anywhere? And at the time, uh, the the case ended. 
very quickly. It ended by April of that year. And the police report has now been produced, uh, which is interesting. We know that the records from this have been um, destroyed. All 2006 intake no files, number files, I'm guessing, were destroyed in January of 2009. They wrote in a statement, um, according to the state attorney, uh, the state attorney office and according to Florida state law. Um but we do have a copy of this this uh, police report, which is interesting. And this is, of course, the first time we've seen it. So uh, we should start off by mentioning the author of this piece is, uh, oh, gosh, hard to say, uh, Ben Fuhrerherd, um, someone who I, I'm not familiar with from, you know, wrestling media circles. But is uh, he's a journalist based in New York, and he previously worked for the New York Post Metro section and uh, has worked in a lot of different things. So. It's interesting, but um, he, he did a good job of finding this report. And at one point in this report, it basically says that uh, the police believe that there's probable cause to charge Vince McMahon. And as I'm going to quote from the report, actually, of exactly what the police wrote at the very end, they said, um, there is probable cause to believe that Vince Int McMahon did actually and intentionally touch against the will of blank, contrary to Florida statute 784.03. Um and so uh, the the name of the victim or the has been um, cleared out of this report in all the cases. So we don't know we don't know her name. Um, but on the next page, it basic or two pages later, it says on March twenty third, two thousand sixteen, SAO, which is a state attorney's office, uh, Jill Richstone stated upon review of the witness statements, there is a lack of independent evidence to support the allegations against Vincent McMahon. The state declines to file charges against McMahon. Case EX-cleared. And at the top, where it says case management status, it says exceptionally cleared. And um, I don't remember if we talked about it or not before, but um, I asked somebody who works in Florida and said, can you tell me what it means to exceptionally clear? And they're like, well, I know somebody who works for the office and they don't have a clue what that term means. So that was really odd to me. So I, I did a little Googling and I found that there is a, a term for kind of case management software. It says exceptionally clearing crimes. And it says an exceptional clearance is a report status that is used when a crime has been solved, but the offender cannot be arrested for reasons beyond the control of your agency investigator. In order to properly use this status, the four conditions must be in place. Number one, the offender has been identified. Number two, there is enough information to support an arrest, charge, and prosecution of the offender. Number three, the location of the offender is known. Number four, there is some reason beyond the control of the officer slash investigator that prevents making an arrest of the offender. With these conditions exist, the case status should be set to exceptionally cleared. The deposition field should be then changed to reflect the status. Um... And it basically says, here are some of the reasons why you might get to that point. Number one, the death of the offender. Number two, murder-suicide. Number three, the extradition of the offender is declined. Number four, in custody in other jurisdiction. Number five, victim refuses to cooperate. Number six, juvenile released. Number seven, prosecution declined. So, And you are reading from tweets that you made on January 20th, correct? Yeah, and, and more specifically, I'm reading from a website called policerecordsmanagement.com, uh, kind of explaining all of this. So this isn't, you know, me, me, I'm, uh, this is all me quoting other things. Right. So if, you're, you're, you're quoting documents from other sources. Yeah. So if someone says, why was this case exceptionally cleared? My answer would be because they, they knew who was being accused. There was not a case of false identification, right? So they knew who they were accusing. They had identified it. Um, they knew who this person was and where they were. They uh, they believed that there was probable cause 
And there was another reason that they couldn't arrest the person. And specifically, the other reason would be either victim refuses to cooperate or prosecution decline because all the other reasons don't make sense. Vince McMahon isn't dead. Uh, he's not in custody. He didn't have to be extradited, et cetera. So it would either be victim refused to cooperate or prosecution declined. And based on the police report, it suggests that basically prosecution declined, right? That the, the attorney general's office or the attorney's office, the state attorney's office declined to prosecute because they believed, quote, uh, as he said, I'm going to say it one more time that there is a lack of independent evidence to support the allegations against Vincent McMahon upon review of the witness statements. So that is why it was exceptionally, um, exceptionally cleared. I think, you know, some more conspiracy mind conspiracy minded people might come up with much more complicated situations. But I think the simple situation is basically the attorney office did not to make the decision that they were they didn't think there's independent evidence that they would be able to bring this case in a presumably in a fashion that w they would win. And so that is why it ended up being exceptionally cleared is because they knew who they were accusing. It wasn't a, a case of mistaken identity and that even though they believed that they had enough to arrest the person, the prosecution declined to do it. And right. the other element could be we would have to re know all of the witness statements to know if there's anything else in this documentation about some contradiction or other concern that they had about what what the what was happening for either cooperation by the victim or some other information. So that's yeah. that's all I have to say about that, really. Um, yeah. You know, I don't have a lot to add to it. Just uh, WB says they have zero tolerance for for sexual assault and things like that. So I think it's important to bring these things up and to understand them as best we can. So yeah, appreciate that. That de definition, that explanation of what exceptional clearance is and what exactly happened here. Well, and I was surprised when I talked to somebody and he's like, I don't know what that means. Cause I was like, well, you work in Florida law. How do you not know what that means? So it, they said it might be a more regional thing about the, the term, but I think it's actually a case management term. And and so I just wanted to kind of clear up what it was, though. It, it, it does. It is interesting to me because it basically reinforms the idea that the police wanted to prosecute and the attorney general, the attorney's office chose not to. And I know at one point there was something that like Dave wrote something where he said something like the police didn't want to prosecute. And I, I kind of had to jump in and be like, no, that's not true. The police did not make that decision. The attorney office made that decision let's not let's not paint with this broad brush and just say everyone in this justice system made the same determination of what happened so right that you know it's it's a detail but it's a good example of a detail that i think is well overlooked um in these situations so um and then our very last thing was this new japan long beach sellout talk to me about um what do the numbers mean to you and what do we learn so New Japan is running Long Beach again in March. Was it March 18th? And tickets went on sale just the other morning. And in about 20 minutes, they were all sold out. That's for a venue that's bigger than the venue that they ran last time, which I think the venue last time was around 2,000, maybe a little over 2,000. And this one's about 5,300, which is about the size of their Osaka Idion Arena. When I, when I was covering it back in the day, it was called Osaka Prefectural Gym. But that's about the size of that venue that they run there. The, that's the one that's always got the hot crowds. But anyway. They said um, uh, the 5,300, slightly less than 5,300 tickets were put on sale because they held back, I think, something like 600 tickets for kind of like New Japan club members and people traveling from overseas and other things like that. But, Japan club? Yeah. That? Oh, you know, like. That's the bowl club? <laughs> no, like, like uh, they have, I think, a fan club for just Japanese members. Oh, um, 
you know, I here I'll quote I'll quote Dave. I think uh, Dave wrote about it in the Observer this week. Um, but yeah, just the idea that uh, what is it? Is it Long Beach they're going to be at? Yep. Um, Three hundred and fourteen tickets were available at press time on the secondary market, and the price entry was one hundred forty bucks. And then um, let me find the other. Ticket prices at face value were priced between fifty and two hundred dollars. And I've seen some stuff on StubHub. I think somebody sent me a leak, uh, link to SeatGeek. We can look it up while, while we're talking here. Yes, a 4,700 tickets were sold as tickets, as some of the tickets were held back for members of the New Japan Fan Club traveling from Japan. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what the New Japan Fan Club is. I believe it's a Japanese-only um, uh, fan club that gets offers to New Japan uh, clubs tickets first. And if you read, you know, a lot of things about how can I get New Japan tickets, you'll see a lot of people referencing, well, there's a membership that is about $50 and comes with some swag. So, I am on SeatGeek right now, actually. It's March 25th, not the 18th. And there are quite a few tickets here uh, on SeatGeek. I was, I was very it's amused. It's not an ad read, as it turns out. Yeah, I was very uh, yep. amused that Dave referred to that as SeatGeeks uh, said this. And I was like, no, Dave, it's just called seat geek. <laughs> uh, well, he's not in the, in the ad revenue supported uh, podcasting game. Is he not really it does not appear as such. Um, but yeah, so they, they sold out quite a lot. So does that suggest they should have run a bigger building? I know a lot of people were criticizing them saying, you know, this is a bad time to try to run a show. It's a couple weeks before WrestleMania. People are already going to be traveling. Is this really a good idea? But they sold out 5,000 tickets in a matter of minutes, right? So. At least 20 minutes, they're all gone. And so the, the question is, are you striking while the iron is hot? Or are you building momentum? You know, because there's that that feel of, great, we sold out 5,000 tickets. We could have done 10,000. But there's also that feel of, okay, we'll do 5,000 this time. We'll do 7,000 next time. We'll do 10,000 time after that. And it can keep getting bigger and bigger versus what if it's one and done? And plus, you know, we know how conservative the Japanese have been about their U.S. kind of adventure here where they, they just have not shown the willingness to believe that there's going to be a market that's going to want this much merchandise or, or tickets. Yeah, I think we've seen that with New Japan World, all my criticisms about why they're not on these US friendly OTT platforms. It's a very gradual process, apparently. They, we're, everybody's excited about New Japan getting into the US and what they might do here. But uh, they're taking it very, very slow and very gradual in terms of, you know, the first show they they ran two. The first time they ran in uh, Long Beach in July of last year, they ran two two thousand seat arenas. Now they're running one show of about five thousand seats. And do you think they could run a big arena like, say, the United Center in Chicago and sell ten thousand? And will they even before this year is up? Maybe. Well, I mean, what one other thing we've seen with WWE is that you know as they get more and more running lots and lots of shows. A lot of tickets go on the secondary market and a lot of times people are getting burned, right? We're seeing people, you know, kind of scalp up the tickets and then try to resell them and then ultimately they're not able to. And then next thing you know, you have shows that are quote unquote sold out on paper, but they're missing a thousand or two thousand people. And so I think what happened with NXT TakeOver in Brooklyn the second time they did it because it was such a hot ticket the first year. I think the the scalpers looked at that and then the second year bought all the tickets up. And then by the time the show actually ran around, of course, it was sold out. You know, on its face, it was sold out because t- ticket scal- scalpers helped sell it out. But then by the time the show came around, the ticket sellers had overbought, and you could get NXT TakeOver Brooklyn tickets for pretty cheap the, the day of. 
Yeah. And so I, I do wonder if if there's that risk of that with this 10,000 seats where, you know, you ran 10,000 seats and then suddenly you're going to have a half empty building or something. And then it's going to create a lot of sourness in the marketplace because it's one thing to not be able to go to a show because it's truly sold out. It's another thing to not be able to go to a show and then also not see it being sold out. And, you know, kind of that lingering perception of maybe you're not as hot as you really were and so forth and so on. So, um, mm-hmm. I, I, and, and to, to the counter example of that NXT takeover Brooklyn example, there's the, uh, WrestleMania 2016 NXT takeover, NXT Dallas takeover where it was Nakamura's debut. And, um, the uh, the secondary market prices were way high, way higher than the, than the face value prices. So it can go either way. Yeah, and and if you were to ask me, what's the right size of the company to run? Right size is a building for the company to run if they're going to run a few weeks before WrestleMania. I would not have said ten thousand seats. So this is a result that shocked me, um, and I think it just speaks to probably pricing, honestly, more than anything else. Personally, these prices are too low. Pro- I I would say. My personal take would be that I would say you should shoot for 5,000 seats and price the tickets much higher rather than suit, shoot for 10,000 seats and then have a world of hurt when it comes to the knowledge you have about pricing in the U.S. marketplace. Mm-hmm. I, and, I and there's also a, a risk of – you got to be careful. If, you, if, you, if they come into this new market and they price their tickets really high, you got to be careful of, of like ending up in a situation where they don't sell out fast and where the, the talk is, the story is – well, those New Japan tickets are, are really highly priced and they're not sold out yet. No, 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 I don't know. You want to be careful not to, I don't know, upset the customer base in some way too. Well, I, I'm, I feel like the, the lesson of, 20, of the 2010s has been price your tickets higher. You know, the more I look at every time someone says, well, you can't run blank at that price. You can't make a pay-per-view $100. You can't make WrestleMania cost this much. You can't put UFC tickets this high. And nine times out of 10, the result is the money was worth it. It's in their pocket and that's value. And the the, the key is you have to deliver the product that you're selling. So yeah. well, I, what, I did, agree with what that. did the Manhattan yeah. Center teach us this last week? They didn't deliver the product they sold, but they sold the tickets. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's uh, on, on a, a small local indie level, there's a, a certain indie, independent wrestling promoter who I'm friends with who I've had many discussions about with about, like, you need to raise the, your, your ticket prices. And, and his reaction is, well, I, I want, you know, families and everybody to be able to, you know, afford it and have it to be a really low price. Like, but you'll make more money and you'll be able to do all these things that you want to do because you'll have more money to do it with. But I have a seminar that I'm going to be given on the Patreon only. Yes. And it's it's one of the things I went to. It's called Dynamic Season Ticket Pricing. Uh, it was at the sports conference it was. It was by uh, Minnesota United FC, which is a, a MLS team here in town. And they're going to a new stadium. And the guys that run the, the season tickets spent a lot of time talking to us about what their philosophy was about changing ticket pricing. And the whole time I listened to it, I thought, this is what every indie promoter or especially every major company that runs things they should be learning about ticket pricing right now and it's an art that is is well misunderstood and so we'll talk a lot more about that there but my my takeaway from this is that i don't know if new japan needed to run a bigger building i think they should have just charged more that's my personal feeling because you can always bring your prices down yeah i think that's very fair so um 
You've been listening to WrestleNomics Radio. We are available every single week, uh, of course, at the Voices of Wrestling Network. We have a patron-only content where we give you access to the notes. We give you additional audio. We might even give you just the raw audio of Chris talking to an empty screen just for fun, just so you can see how much does Chris repeat himself? How much does Chris contradict himself? You never know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you can find us at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. And, of course, my website is indeedwrestling.com. Also, if you go to WrestleNomics.com, you'll go to my blog. You can find me on Twitter at Mookie You can email me at WrestleNomics at gmail.com or Chris.Harrington at gmail.com. Just do not ask me to get you in touch with Seth Rollins. I cannot. No. Um, no. But beyond that you, – You get those emails from Seth Rollins about the W Network though. I get I get every week – He emails you. Yeah, You know what I, I get every week is – Someone sends me a um, – I'm sorry. I just got an email from general at illuminati.bg, which is pretty exciting. Um, but I also get a lot of, hey, can you please tell me when the uh, WWE is coming back to insert town in the middle of uh, Utah because of uh, me being connected with all the tour schedule stuff? And I have like – You're the guy on I have like one guy who emails me like every month about it. And really? I just keep being like, I don't have that information. He's like, well, when will you have that information? And be like, I don't know if I'll ever have that information. And then he'll just a week later, he'll be like, when are they coming back to this place? Like, we just had this conversation. Well, I hope he's listening. Yeah, he is not. And I mean, he knows how, how much he's annoying you. So, Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing Jericho put him up to it. So we'll see. Probably. 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 All right. Uh, maybe, maybe it's Jericho himself under a pseudonym. I would hope so. He's, he's Donald Trumping himself like a PR secretary. Uh, tell me a little bit about how people can contact you, Mr. Mr. Howard Thurston. They can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. Uh, WQ4 report is coming up. I'll probably have some coverage on Fightful.com for that. Follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram. Go to the Patreon, $5 a month. You get all this bonus audio. You get these notes that look like a, a messy but very interesting uh, sheet on wrestling business and economics. So. Do you know, you know what our word count is right now? This doc, let's see, tools, word count, 5,000 words. Uh, it's going to be less than that by the time we publish, but yeah. yeah. I'm going to edit my emails on the bottom, but yeah, it'll be good. That's right, because we still got more to talk about. We're going to talk about Impact Wrestling and what their roster changes have been like, Mixed Match Challenge, Total Divas viewership. We're going to have your seminar on sports business and Hulkapedia.com. Let's find out what it is. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. There is a new shining star with great interviews, analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Coon, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.